VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you very much for tuning in to the program. It's Wednesday, September the 14th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams, you know the deal. He's the producer of the program. You'll be speaking with David when you give us a shout this morning to get on the program. If you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial is 273-5211, or elsewhere, it's toll-free long distance 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 86 26. Well, overnight, someone sent me a screen grab of some Montreal blogger who's following along with the Montreal Canadiens rookie camp. And, of course, in attendance is Bay Roberts native Riley Mercer, goaltender. His brother, Dawson Mercer, plays for the New Jersey Devils. The report was that Mercer looked great. I mean, it's all fair, it's all great and interesting and fun when we see people from this province excelling on the big stage in the NHL, in this example. So it would be so cool to have a pair of brothers from Bay Roberts playing in the bigs. Anyway, keep it going, Riley. Apparently he's looking good out there. I want to say good morning and congratulations to my buddy Joe Gibbons. Joe Gibbons, of course, a photographer at The Telegram. Yesterday celebrated 35 years at The Telegram. That's a long haul in any career. Joe does great work alongside his colleague Keith Goss at The Telegram. So congratulations, Joe. Into year 36, yeah, go. All right, so ramping up all the athletics that month, of course, the Seahawks. It's too bad they don't have men's volleyball. But anyway, good luck to all of those athletes. And, of course, in high school and junior high, they're in the exact same process now to get some sports going. A lot of it happens in the fall, so we wish them well. And, of course, with academics. Oh, speaking of on, congratulations to Earl Ludlow. He's been named the new chancellor at Memorial University. It's pretty much a ceremonial head of the university. He does indeed have a role in university governance. He presides over the convocation and the like, but uh, Mr. Ludlow with a pretty impressive history as a professional man with Fortis Group for some four decades. He's also a member of the Order of Newfoundland. He's the new chancellor at Memorial University. And as part of the Green Report and the Rothschild Report was Marble Mountain, among other government assets. The government has now expanded their RFP, hopefully to bring in more than the three proposals in the last go-around. So now they say inside the request for proposals, they will seek professional guidance on recommended upgrades and additions to allow year-round operations and position the resort for prospective new owners. Probably an appropriate extension to the RFP, given that the apparently inside the three proposals they received, nothing very attractive. And, of course, the hope is that Marble Mountain, which is a great hill, best hill in Atlanta, Canada, can indeed find a way to expand their offerings to year-round and can indeed find owners who can make a business model work that does not include the million dollars-ish that comes from the provincial government annually. And it's always a big debate about whether or not that's an appropriate spend. I think if you're on the west coast of the island, if Marble Mountain shot down, that would have a pretty significant ripple effect through other businesses. But anyway, we'll see what becomes of it. All right. Today in history on the small screen. Good night, John Boy. The Waltons first premiered on American television in 1972 on This Day in History. Of course, based on a book by a fellow named Earl Hamner Jr. And you know the story. It's all about a family living in rural Virginia, trying to cope with and get through the Great Depression. It just leads me down this path. I don't know if you watch The Waltons. I remember vividly watching it as a child. But, you know, we talk about trying to find a way to escape the daily doldrums and the stresses of work and family and money and all the rest of it. Some people watch sports like I love to watch sports. I find it to be a great escape or listen to music or to read or to draw or to paint or whatever you do. But a lot of people do indeed turn to television, you know, for the obvious reasons. 
television has really overcome movies for caliber of production, in my personal opinion. So, like, do you have a show that you're almost afraid to admit that you watch? You know, m people who maybe watch the stories in the afternoon, you know, catch a, an eye full of Days of Our Lives or The Young and the Restless or some of the notables. Or maybe you watch reality TV, which some people scoff at. Maybe Big Brother's your bag. For me, I hate to admit it, but I'm going to. I've now latched on to watching The Great British Baking Show. <laughs> of all the things. I don't think I've ever baked a thing in my life. And all of a sudden, I just, my wife and one of the boys would watch it every now and then. Out of the corner of my eye, I'd see it. And then all of a sudden, I got drawn in. Now, the Brits do a great job on stuff like that. So I just watched the finale on Sunday night, the great British baking show. So where and what is your escape? Okay. So I made some mention yesterday that there was apparently conversations, and obviously there were conversations, surrounding what would September the 19th Monday look like here in the country, given the fact that it is the day that the Queen will be laid to rest in the funeral at Westminster Abbey. I didn't know if it was going to come to be, but apparently, yes indeed, a holiday for some. Out of respect, of course, given her 70 years on the throne, and she was the Queen of Canada. People can debate whether or not they care about that, and that's all fine and dandy, but for to each their own. But there now will indeed be a holiday. It was a bit confusing when I first saw it reported, because it was reported in two different ways. So here's the ins and the outs. It's a federal government holiday. If you work for the federal government, you have a holiday on Monday. There was some thought that it might be also extended to federally regulated industries, which is a pretty broad stroke. So that'd be banks and telecoms, airlines, but it is not extended to the federally regulated industry. The couriers, for instance, are inside of that world. So the federal government workers, they get a holiday. In this province, the government has also instituted a government holiday for their workers. So, for instance, schools will be closed on Monday. Businesses are encouraged to do what they can, but they're not mandated to close. It is not a paid stat holiday for their employees. So some of the reaction has been, well, it's a holiday for me and not a holiday for thee. I'm not really surprised it came to this, even though I'm not so sure it was a required move. But anyway, out of respect, so says the Prime Minister and Premier Fury, that there will indeed be a government holiday. We don't have one. We'll be here on Monday morning. But if you want to talk about the, you know, it's a bit of a scene of the have and the have-nots. You know, everyone likes to have a holiday. Of course, why wouldn't you want to have a holiday? So... Government will be closed federally, government closed provincially, so schools will be closed, for instance, on Monday, which brings upon the need and the ongoing scramble for childcare. But I guess many Canadians, out of respect and admiration and understanding the role she's played in public service, that decision has been made. And if you want to take it on as to whether or not you think it's a good idea, a bad idea, or anything about it, we can do it. Now, I think the business community is quite pleased that it hasn't been extended automatically to them for the need to close and for a paid holiday for their employees. So like most public policies and these types of decisions, where you stand depends on where you sit. If you get it, you're thrilled. If you don't, you're probably not that pleased at all. So I've got some emails on both sides of the equation on that one today. Also, when we refer to September the 19th on Monday, it's a day that there's a tentative return for employees at the Convoy Chance facility. We all know about the flash fire and the explosion on the 2nd of September. Eight people sent to hospital, two have been discharged. We're trying to find out more information without getting too far into people's privacy about how some of the injured workers are doing. So there's going to be information sessions at the end of this week for the employees. Some will be returning on Monday for what they're calling light duties. 
But many union members and the representatives are saying, well, there's one guy in particular who works out of Combat Chance. He's been there for, I think he said, 28 years. Of course, Brea Renewable Fuels. He says he's not going back until he knows what caused the explosion, for sure. Not word of mouth or rumbles or rumors. He wants to know from the company what happened and what they've done to make it a safer environment. It's hard to argue with that. You know full well the possibility for this type of incident at a place like Briar Renewable Fuels is real. And it's every day. So the tentative date to go back is once again on September the 19th. And we will try to get some more information. Maybe we'll see if we can get an update from Glenn Nolan before the end of the week, Dave, just to see what he's got going on, what they know about the investigation and what happened and how many people are in the rank and file are really worried about going back to work because that's very real. Of course it is. And talk about fear. You know, the RNC, RCMP, sometimes you're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't. And in this case, a pretty scary incident took place here in the east end of town a couple of nights ago where there was what they're calling random attacks to home invasions. And these were serious. So one person was stabbed and sent to hospital. The second break-in, of course, elderly couple. One was 88, one was 90. They suffered some minor injuries. Some uh, cash and jewelry was stolen. But it's not necessarily all about the injury. It's about the fear. Can you imagine both of those families? They must have been terrified at the moment. And I would imagine the fear lingers on for a long, long time. So the RNC have now recommended to the general public, and we don't know where they may strike again or when they'll be caught. Let's hope they are apprehended ASAP, because they're obviously dangerous. But the recommendation went a long way. It said, lock your doors. Now, just remember, it feels like it's not that long ago that locking doors, people really didn't pay much attention to it, especially in the daytime. You're just home, noodling around, watching the Great British Baking Show or the story or whatever, cooking supper. But they're telling you to lock your door. So the fear that these families felt, and I mean, I'm trying not to be fearful, nor am I trying to stoke or fan the flames of fear. Why would I? But it's real. When you hear the RNC talking like that, and you know, even going a step further to say, even when your door is locked, if someone knocks and you don't recognize them, don't answer. Or if you weren't expecting someone or a package, don't answer. So I don't know how you heard that yesterday, but for me, I locked the door. It just kind of happened. You know, I got my children inside and really not sure what to do. And people will always talk about the preparedness and whether or not you have a security system or to push back or to fight back. But when those things become incumbent on the RNC to say, lock your door, I think a lot of people. And it might not just be in the East End. So, again, you'll judge yourself accordingly. You'll do what you think is best for you and your family. But that warning is really quite stark. Now, they have released some photographs from CCTV cameras. I'm not so sure why they're so blurry. It's really hard to make out who you might be looking at. There's a couple of shots that give you some indication. Like, you, if you know these people, you could probably recognize them. But they're really blurry. I don't know if that's intentional or what the reason is behind it. But I, hopefully they have some better shots. Because the general public, I'm sure, would be happy to play an active role to seeing these three people arrested and dealt with in the starkest fashion. But, boy, that warning, that struck a chord with me. And I guarantee you, it really hit home for a lot of folks, especially folks who are getting up in age. 
So you want to take it on, we can do it. And in that world of criminal justice, you don't hear about these things very often, but this is the epitome of evil. There's a fellow named Dominic Delisle. He's 36 years of age. He's from St. John's. He's got a long history, criminal history, in the province of Quebec. He's being charged with human trafficking. Two counts of trafficking for the purpose of exploiting a person, plus another of benefiting from committing the offense. There's only been one such charge in this province in the last decade. And that charge was eventually withdrawn. But in the province of Quebec, we're hearing from reports from the Parole Board of Canada that this guy has pimping convictions going back to 2007. The records also indicate clearly that he targeted girls between 15 and 17. So sometimes we don't hear about it. We think maybe it doesn't happen where we live. You know, this quiet, sleepy province, which is really not as quiet and sleepy as it was not so long ago. So between the air and sea warning yesterday and human trafficking charges, boy, oh boy, strange stuff. Uh, you want to talk about it? We can do it. All right, let's go to the west coast of the island this morning. This is really encouraging news for the prospect of the Diamond Group, led by Carl Diamond, to, they've already bought the Stephenville Airport, but to follow through with all the investment of monies, the creation of jobs, the unmanned drones that are going to be built on site, the VERT support that may be coming as well. So they've taken one step further. This is really encouraging. For the longest while, people thought, well, there's nothing to this. This is just headline-grabbing stuff, and it's pie in the sky, and it may never come to pass. This deal well, a memorandum of understanding, is now in place between Diamond Aerospace, Inc., and Duxian Motors. Okay, so they are going to supply some 200 of their patented E-Jet motors for use, of course, in the new fleet of unmanned cargo air aircraft. People call them the drones, but the unmanned cargo aircraft. And we spoke with Mr. Diamond on the show. There'll be no military application for these, these drones. So 20 E-Jet motors per year, over 10 years, starting in 2026, the purchase price tag, $500 million Canadian. Apparently, they have some unique propulsion system, and I don't really understand it at all, some magnet technology. But anyway, this does take us one step further to thinking that maybe this is going to come to pass. It'll come to fruition. The investment of dollars, the upgrades, they're going to build a new 7,000-square-foot hangar for this, or 70,000-square-foot hangar, pardon me, at what has now been rebranded as the Stephenville Diamond International Airport for this. So the engines seem to have massive power, producing 8,000 pounds of thrust, similar to the thrust produced by engines of the 50-passenger CRJ-100 aircraft. So that's just yet another deal. Now, this company was founded back in 2017. And apparently they're doing work globally. So while all the doubts persist, and of course, until it's all completed in full, as was proposed, people will ask questions. That's just how the world works. But this is a nice positive indicator, I think, right? How about you? You add to the fact that we'll see what becomes of World Energy GH2's proposal in the Port of Port Peninsula. You know the deal there, the 164 wind turbines, ammonia plant, hydrogen plant, exporting of green hydrogen. If it all comes around in and around the same time frame, that's big news. Now, of course, there's always got to be the careful evaluation of World Energy GH2, the implication for provincial tax dollars, of which Mr. Risley says there will be none when we had him on this program. And then the environmental assessment has to be comprehensive. All the boxes have to be checked. But if you're talking about economic uptick, creation of jobs, expansion of the tax base, these two projects, if they get off the ground like has been proposed, that's pretty big news. So Duxian Motors, $500 million deal with Diamond Aerospace, Inc. You want to talk about that one? I think that's a big one. And all right, back to what is maybe not so great. This story is a head-scratcher. It really, truly is, as I scratch my head. Funny. 
We all know the story regarding family doctors, but this one particular specific story at F- on Fogo Island is truly remarkable. There's a fellow named Dr. Paul Hart. He offered his services as a family doctor on Fogo Island for free, for three months. He would pay for his travel, he'd pay for his lodging, not accepting any compensation. He said if any is uh, afforded to him, he would simply write a check f- for the similar amount back to the town. Okay. He's one of the first graduating class at Memorials Medical School in 1973. Moved to Toronto at that time, and then, without completing the, can- the Canadian exam, to practice, he moved to the United States and set up shop in Massachusetts in Boston, where he has been a practicing physician for almost five decades. But here's where, the tr- here's where it gets tricky. So it's such a generous offer, and the province was thrilled, and the health authority was thrilled, and the community was thrilled, and the hospital was thrilled. But now, it looks like he probably will not be coming. There was a need, and here's where all the catch-22s uh, come into play. He doesn't qualify his eligibility for a license to practice in this province. You have to have practiced 120 days within the last three years leading up to the date of his application. Now, the good doctor, a graduate of Mons Med School, practiced for almost 50 years. He doesn't have the Canadian exam because he was practicing in the United States. And here's where it gets, I think, a little bit frustrating, is that he has been not actively engaged as a healthcare provider other than the fact that he's been providing telemedicine virtual care. So at the same time, while we're being told that virtual care become more and more common, more and more people will avail of it, the College of Physicians and Surgeons doesn't consider telemedicine as being actively engaged and actively practicing. So which is it? They say the licensing uh, review, licensing uh, process is under review. That's all fine and dandy. So a doctor has to have malpractice insurance, but you have to have a provincial medical license to get the malpractice insurance. And virtual medicine is not good enough. Now, the province, to their credit, you know, there was a $780 uh, fee to apply for the license. The province has offered to cover it. I mean, they, you know, people say the politicians, they don't care about us. They don't want anything. They're not going to do anything for us. But in this front, there's a huge political victory, regardless of who the politician is. If they can be part of a news story that says we've hired X number of doctors and things are getting better and more and more people have access to, that's a political win. So good on the province for trying to take it on. But it's really high time. Now, we want doctors to be up to standard. Of course we do. And to have all the appropriate credentials and testing in place. Of course we do. But a 50-year veteran willing to do it for nothing, it's time for the college in my personal opinion, to either help deal with the disconnect between more and more people will use virtual medicine, but it doesn't even count as active practice. So it looks like there's a doctor that can ease some of the worries and the woes on Fogo Island that we just can't figure it out and bring him here on his own dime. Three months, no cost. He pays for his travel, pays for his lodging, pays for his food, does everything for free, takes on patients for three months. And he went on to say, if after three months there's still no doctor, he'll stay. Let's hope we can figure that one out, because that one's not good at all. All right. Yesterday, the highly anticipated announcement coming from the Prime Minister, of course, as a result of the support agreement, whatever you want to call it, the coalition, the prop-up of the minority parliament by the NDP. They had demands, and some of them have now been met. One of those regarding dental care. So the dental care issue, I don't know what means for this province, because we actually have a pretty robust dental care for children 12 and under, but that's where the focus is on this dental care plan. So 
Yeah. The Canadian, the Canada Dental Benefit for children under 12 who do not have access to dental insurance. Low and middle income families with a combined income of under uh, $90,000 can access up to $650 per year for the next two years for dental services. They're talking about expanding it to uh, 18 under by 2023, uh, and that also includes people with disabilities. Full implementation of the program by 2025. Okay. Not really sure what that means for this province because, as I mentioned, we have a pretty robust plan in place. They have also made a move on the Canada Housing Benefit. That was launched back in 2020, $4 billion over eight years. The government said now the benefit will be available to families with an adjusted net income below $35,000 or to singles with incomes below $20,000, and you have to pay at least 30% of their income on rent. So that money is out there. Also, the expansion of the GST, which I think is going to be important for a lot of folks, even though the Liberals didn't support this you know, six months ago. Anyway, here it comes. The GST tax credit will be doubled for six months. That's going to impact some 11 million Canadians and families who currently receive the credit. So singles without children will get up to $235 more from the credit. Couples with children will get up to $467 more with the credit. And seniors, they'll get an average boost of about $225 this year. So doubled for six months. You want to talk about that? We can do it. We're on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Our email address is openline at VOCM.com. And when we come back to kick it off, we talk about the Tomcats recreational female recreational hockey league yesterday and their learn to play program. Dina Kavanaugh from the Tomcats. First up, and then we're speaking with you. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's start on the top of the board and say good morning to one of the coaches, a member of the Tomcats executive team. That's Dina Kavanaugh. One second. Uh, good morning, Dina. You're on the air. Good morning, Teddy. How are you? I couldn't be better this morning. How about you? Oh, pretty good. The young fellow walked out through the front door this morning and said, look, Mommy, it's sunny. I said, well, it's not raining, so I'll take it. <laughs> we'll take it. Apparently, it's going to brighten up even more later on today, which is good. And hopefully, it dries up so I can start cleaning up my backyard, which is really quite the mess. But I appreciate making time for the show. Right off the bat, how long have the Tomcats been around? Uh, so the Tomcats actually started in uh, 2011, and actually the, the very first um, group of ladies who got together basically uh, just wanted to learn how to play hockey. They managed to find some ice time out at the old tin can there off Smallwood Drive, and their um, some spouses and significant others actually helped run practices and and teach the ladies how to uh, how to skate and uh, and play hockey essentially and. Over the past 11 years, I guess we've grown into being able to uh, provide this uh, Learn to Play program, as you've uh, summarized there yesterday, and we appreciate you reaching out and wanting to uh, discuss discuss it further. I think it's great. If if you're a woman in and around my age, say, for instance, in your mid-50s, even wanting to play minor hockey was not really there. It was pretty intimidating. There was mostly boys. It was absolutely dominated by males when I was growing up. Now, thankfully, enrollment in uh, minor hockey for girls is growing, which is keeping the minor hockey numbers strong. So things like this are really a part of it. So... It still might be intimidating, Dina, if I have no real hockey background. I'm a weak skater. I've never had the gear on. I've never had a puck on my stick. What do you say to those women who are thinking, I'd love to try, but I'm not sure? Then it's, you're a perfect fit for our program. Uh, basically, we have uh, a set of, I'll say, criteria for people to participate. And, of course, one of those criteria is you you know, if you've never worn a pair of hockey skates before, you don't know how to pick up a stick, you don't know how to shoot the puck, uh, you know, you're a prime candidate to participate in this type of program. If you've had less than two years of experience on the ice, uh, like Haley, basically, she was, uh, she mentioned in her, her interview there uh, the other day, she, you know, kind of picked up and started playing, but 
didn't have any real, uh, you know, coaching or direction with, you know, how to um, properly skate, stop, shoot, those types of things. And as well as if some people, some women might have played for a couple of years when they were younger and maybe they want to get back at it and finally, you know, be able to start playing hockey with women. You know, those types of women are certainly encouraged to to reach out to us as well and perhaps participate in the program. We We help women learn, you know, the basics of skating, like I said, hockey fundamentals, as well as, you know, how, how to put on your equipment, uh, how the equipment should fit and, and everything in between. Do you have, uh, pardon me, do you have anyone interested in playing goalie? We do, actually, okay. yeah. We have one lady right now. We have 40 participants in total. And one lady, she used to play uh, hockey uh, in high school. She was a goalie at that point in time. And she was really excited to uh, try playing goalie again. So, yeah, we're, we're pretty fortunate that way as well. Yeah, you're lucky because that's the that's the hardest position to fill. Like, even in men's rec hockey, we've got rental goalies out there all the time because it's hard sometimes to find a goaltender. One thing we do know, and as the parent of minor hockey players, sometimes even just the price of equipment. So your program is free you get six training sessions but even trying to kit up get all the gear required is an intimidating price tag but not so with you guys oh absolutely so we actually started our gear share program uh, in 2016 we actually won the best beer league team in the world uh this westie award and with that came about eight thousand dollars worth of uh hockey equipment so through that uh, program, we were able to start our gear share. Uh, so at this point, I believe we have enough gear basically to suit out about 13 players fully. Uh, most women who come to the program do have some access to, you know, bits and pieces of equipment. But we do help, you know, ladies fill those gaps. And, you know, then, like I said, you don't have to go out and invest, you know, hundreds of dollars in, in equipment that you may, you know, poke in the corner and never use again, right? And you don't need a $400 composite hockey stick either. Uh, <laughs> no, that's right. so infuriating. Uh, so you were once funded by Hockey Canada, is my understanding. Then there was issues with uh, the transferring to different insurance companies and lots of these tangles that people don't see or feel or hear unless you're involved in hockey so how are you funded now so uh, about a couple of months ago so we were really keen I guess to get the learn to play program back up and running especially after COVID and everything hit and threw everyone sideways uh, so about a couple of months ago we reached out essentially to the community for a call for sponsorship so we were looking for um, jerseys for participants access to ice time or you know monetary funding to help offset those costs uh, so through that initiative, just through social media, we ended up uh, becoming in contact with Extreme Hockey. Uh, we met with them, and they have been absolutely fantastic. Uh, they provided us with six sessions free of charge, as well as 40 jerseys, uh, one for each of the participants, So, which is you know, exactly what we were looking for um, and really uh, helped us be able to um, you know, pull off this program free of charge to participants uh, in September. And Andrew and Randy, they're good hockey people, so they're good folks to be involved with. Of course, I've got a rink. That doesn't hurt either. You know, <laughs> you, you mentioned the, the Beer League Award. Getting out and playing is great, and it would be remarkable just how quick people pick up on the skating and their puck handling skills improve very quickly from the beginning of the year to the end of the year. You'll see a massive difference. But it's the social aspect. I'm sure most of my pals still play. They love the game, but it's seeing the boys or seeing the girls in this case and having a beer and shooting the breeze. It's something about the social aspect of rec hockey that's hard to replicate, even if you're playing slow pitch softball or what have you. Just talk about how important that is for the Tomcats. Oh, it's it's so important. I mean, like I said to uh, to a lot of the, the women starting out, uh, you know, we're here to 
first and foremost, have fun, make friends, and, you know, we'll learn a little bit about hockey along the way. Um, the atmosphere in the dressing room is just so positive. There's so many smiles, laughs on the ice, you know, people falling down and getting up. And it's just, uh, it's a great atmosphere. And it's great to be able to, you know, let people let their hair down and not be afraid or intimidated to, to go out and try something new. And, and uh, I'm sure there's going to be a few beers had and a few stories shared uh, towards the end of the, the season, for sure. <laughs> and if it's anything like the male uh, locker rooms, uh, the stories is one thing, the lies are the other, how big your oh, slap well, shot you know, used yeah. to be. <clears throat> <clears throat> it's great stuff. Oh, so, and some resin, you know, tormenting each other and all that kind of good stuff. Yeah, 100%. So. Throw around a few <laughs> nicknames, and it's just wonderful. So do you still have space for this year's Tomcats? And if people are at all interested, what do you want them to do? So uh, basically, I, uh, people can reach out to us on social media. We have, uh, you know, a Facebook page. We're also on Twitter, Instagram, those types of things. Uh, so this, uh, we're about halfway through this particular program, but uh, there has been a lot of uh, interest over the past uh, couple of days. We've, we've got a lot of messages and, and women saying that they would love to, uh, you know, participate in the Tomcats or the, the Learn to Play program. Uh, we, uh, the next uh, round, I guess, or, or the next um the next Learn to Play program that we're able to to pull off will definitely be uh, sharing it through our social media. So I definitely encourage people to do that. Um, and uh, I guess as Tomcat's organization itself, we typically carry between 30 to 40 uh, active players. Uh, but we can certainly, depending on you know people's skill level and whatnot, we can certainly get uh, people in touch with with other uh, skates as well around the city. I mean, there there is a lot of opportunity for women to play hockey now. Uh, you know, there's. Uh, Eastern Edge, there's Skoden, there's a bunch of other, uh, you know, rec skates as well. There's uh, T-Rex and whatnot. So, you know, if uh, if people are looking to play a game of hockey, if if it's not through through us, we can certainly help people, uh, you know, get on the ice in some way or another. Yeah, Skoden and the Skoden Cup. Look, this is great. I think it's brilliant. Uh, thanks for making time for the program this this morning, and good luck this season. Thank you so much. And anytime you want to chat, feel free to reach out. Will do. <laughs> thanks, Dina. Thank you. You're welcome. Bye. Bye-bye. Gina Cavanaugh is one of the coaches, mentors, member of the executive team at the Tomcats Rec League. Before we get to the break, oh, is Steve there? Do you want me to take Steve? No, he's gone. Okay, let's take a break. When we come back, well, there's Innovation Week upcoming and a conference upcoming led by TechNL. Their CEO is Florian Viom. He joins us right after this. Don't go away. Weekdays on VOCM. It's Open Line with your host, Patty Daly. Join the conversation each morning from 9 a.m. to noon on your VOCM. We get people talking. Welcome back to the program let's go to line number five say good morning to the ceo at tech nl that's florian viom good morning florian you're on the air good morning everyone uh, good morning uh, paddy thanks for joining us this morning sir very excited to be here so i mean obviously big stuff going on in your field and that your at your company or your organization but here comes innovation week and i notice on the agenda one of the first keynote speakers is jamie king of course from verifin you know we talk about getting involved in the tech and innovative sector and the startups and the trials and tribulations and the funding rounds and not everyone could be the next verifin but how do you speak to your members to say well you might be the next verifin how do you temper that emotion or do you just use jamie king's success to drive people to add that horsepower to their plans? I think um, any entrepreneurs, um, it starts with a, a passion project, often like something that they, they really, that triggers their interest. And um, you, you never know if you're really um, an entrepreneur, but uh, if you build on your passion project, something you're really interested, a topic that you're interested, you never know where it can, uh, it can take you. So, so for me, like I, 
I just uh, encourage anybody to uh, to think about um, um, this, like their big project, to be creative and think and don't think too much about where you can take them, because uh, you might be the next Verifin, you don't, just don't know yet. Because there's lots of steps in between a startup and a Verifin that replicates a lot of success and profitability. Things are changing really quickly in your sector, but there's a lot of projects and possibility for new industries to come to town. When so many world leaders and huge engineering companies made their way to the West Coast, talking about green hydrogen, but of course these companies, when they see the province and they get a taste of what we have to offer, not only about environmentally in deep water ports and whatnot, but the skills and the talent here, did that kick open any doors? Did that spark a lot of conversation inside your group? Because, I mean, between Siemens and Thiessen Krug and Volkswagen and Mercedes and everyone that's been here, what does that mean? Yeah, no, it's um, all those opportunities here around us. Uh, hydrogen will be a big one. And uh, internally, we have been you know, discussing on how we take uh, that opportunity. But there are also other opportunities, um, for example, in the um, a larger energy sector and uh, oil and gas. And uh, actually, yesterday, we had... Um, we had a, a tech market that we organized where we uh, connect some of the uh, tech member companies to um, uh, oil and gas uh, companies to, to help develop their business. It was a, a great event at the farmer markets uh, because for us, we, we see a lot of, of connection between the tech sector and other industries. We had like organization like uh, Kraken, Virtual Marine, Colab, Radiant360, Corsfair, Explore Robots that uh, just pitched their, I, I think you know maybe the, um, the, the, the show Dragon's Den, so it was a similar format. They pitched their technology to the, um, the, the oil and gas sector, and it was a great way to, uh, to create connections. And, uh, but I think we can do more um, by connecting uh, all those digital um, technologies and technology developed here in Newfoundland to, uh, to other industries uh, in the province, because it's, it's very impressive and to see like the level of sophistication of, of uh, technology companies here. People view the oil and gas sector as a really well understood decades long history here and around the world, but the innovative solutions required for subsea work, what have you, are still ongoing. They are nowhere near the end of their innovative road, are they? No, I, and I think, you know, like um, in, in, in technology in general, there are always new tools and um, new um, innovation that emerge that make you rethink on how you do. So it, it's not necessarily a matter of, you know, getting the latest technology and, and, and stop there. It's really to uh, continuously uh, innovate. And uh, um, yesterday the, um, I was um, uh, with Energy and L, uh, clearly the, uh, the oil and gas sector, they really want to embrace this continuous innovation and be um, aware of all uh, activities and innovation that are available to them to innovate and continuously bring value and, and be more successful and and that's, um, that's, I think that's a really the right mindset. There, and I mentioned that things are changing rapidly here. It's not that long ago that North Volt AB signed a deal with Valet. They make electric batteries, electric vehicle batteries for Tesla, for instance. But then, yeah. you know, I read a new story, and this is going to be all about a tech and innovation. It would be what would be the advent of a Canadian global supply chain right here, founded in the country regarding electric vehicles and their batteries. Interestingly, we've got a long history as Canadians with exporting some of our most valuable raw materials as opposed to creating a supply chain and the, from start to finish. We're the only democratic country on the face of the earth with all the critical minerals required for electric vehicle batteries. What does that mean to you and your group? Because they're talking about an industry that can ramp up quickly and be valued in and around $50 billion per year if we take advantage of what's right in front of us. 
Yeah, no, the mining industry is is another great industry that we um, we can leverage to develop the, uh, the the tech sector here. And I and I I really think you know like <clears throat> all those thriving industry around us, we can um, leverage them to 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 grow what's possible here in the province. And what I found is that often it's not that. Um, um, you know those uh, companies don't in in those indi- other industries don't know don't want to uh, engage with local organization. It's just that they don't know, and I think um, it's also our responsibility and my responsibility as CEO of of, of TechNL to create uh, spaces where our members can expose their technology and their solution to the mining industry. So so we need to really be uh, at the top of all those trends that you mentioned. And, but also organize events like the tech market yesterday to showcase the uh, level of sophistication and solution that can help them to, uh, to achieve uh, what they want to achieve using um, a local uh, technology and, and, and also inspiring um, new companies to, uh, to emerge in those fields. I guess Innovation Week is part of this, but of course time is of the essence. If we're going to be successful to get in on the ground floor and have a Canada-wide industry, so we're not just exporting our critical materials and minerals for all the, the development of high-value goods, to do it here. So how do you get out there beyond, say, Innovation Week to make sure that everybody here who can play a role does play a role? Because the big established companies, they rule the roost so often, more often than not. So how do you deal with the, the speed required to be part of this? The speed is uh, just uh, one, one thing I, um, I I like to say, you know, like Newfoundland Labrador, or maybe it's a, a different uh, scale than uh, uh, bigger business communities in cities like Montreal and Toronto. But we can certainly be world class when it comes to interconnectedness and collaboration. So I think we need to use that smaller network that we are here to be more nimble, to offer solutions um, uh, quicker. Uh, to reach out to uh, those companies that are um, about to grow significantly, to uh, showcase what we have, but also help them to, uh, to to be better. So for me, like the nimbleness, the, the collaboration, uh, also a partnership between um, companies um, themselves um, can uh, can accelerate that, uh, and also visibility and and the um, innovation week is also a way to to showcase what we have to offer the, uh, as a tech sector. Um, it, it brings like um, the business community, but also students, public and private partners to, to engage and inspire us and, and showcase what uh, what's happening in the province. And uh, funny enough, like the um, of all time, this year is, uh, this year is about business talent, uh, talent and, uh, and uh, business scaling and talent. And, and, and I, or as you mentioned, Jamie King, one of the um, the keynote, the keynote of the Innovation Week, will talk about his journey on how he he leverage also opportunities in Newfoundland to um, to to grow the uh, to, to grow Verifin. So so there are a number of uh, opportunities that um, uh, can uh, learning opportunities at Innovation Week that can be. Uh, leverage and 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 that, that can answer some of your questions about how how to take advantage of those opportunities in other industries, including around accessing to capital and and, and talent as well. And you never know what catches the eye of the not only the uh, people willing to invest their capital, but the industry at large. You know, so whether it be Mesa Smart Thermometers or talking about shining a spotlight on the province because two big companies may indeed use Collab softwares, collaborative software. Now all of a sudden they're looking at our province because they're using a new Newfoundland and Labrador-based company. So all these things work in, in union, in conjunction. So it's, it's fascinating times for you and your members. If people would like to go to, attend, or be involved in Innovation Week, what do they need to do, Florian? 
Yeah, so um, first of all, I want to say you don't have to be involved in the technology sector to uh, to join um, uh, Innovation Week. It's for um, any um, anybody in the business committee, students, um, um, or people who just have a general interest or curiosity on the Innovation Week. They can go on our website at um, techanl.ca and register. We have an early bird price um, until um, a few days, so I just encourage them I encourage any of you to uh, to look at it. It's going to be inspiring. It's pretty unique. We don't hear that many times Jamie King talking about um, his story. So um, I really encourage um, uh, everybody to uh, to attend and also post-secondary students because we talk about the future. We can create any business opportunities uh, for uh, growing companies, but we need also talent, and that's a big topic. So we also encourage like uh, postgraduate uh, um, students to attend. It's a great networking opportunity, and you never know they might be part of the the next Verifin or the next uh, Cola, Misa, or any of those great companies. Yeah, we do good work at Mon at the Genesis Center and the Center for Entrepreneurship. So there's good things happening. We need to build on the momentum. But always appreciate your time, Florian. Thank you. Thank you, and uh, thank you, everyone. Take good care. Bye-bye. That's Bye-bye. Florian Viome. He's the CEO at TechNL. Big stuff happening there. I mean, sometimes we get caught up in what are some real obvious concerns and problems and worries that people have, but there's reasons to be optimistic in this province. There really, truly is, when we're talking about the economy anyway. So let's go ahead and take a break. Pardon me. When we come back, Oral is there to talk about the home invasions. Jim wants to talk about pensions. Then we're talking about the ride for refugees. Don't go away. Welcome back. Let's go to line number three. Jim, you're on the air. Oh, Hi, hello. Hi, Jim. Oh, yes, yeah, just a second. I'll turn off the speaker. Okay. Okay, go ahead. Yeah, uh, I uh, wanted to ask two questions, uh, slightly broad, but anyway. Uh, one question is about the, uh, you mentioned something like the seniors would get maybe 225 or something out of that uh, uh, stuff Trudeau announced the other day federally. Uh, that's that's uh, just the, the boost of the GST is about the uh, 225, that's right. Yes, yes. Okay, will that be, is that 225 per month or is it a total of 225 for the six months or what is it? That's a total. Oh, total. Okay. And will that be taxable? Is GST ever taxable? I don't know. I don't know. Anything. I've never had a GST check, so I think it's it is. Your income, you know. Yeah, I so think it is taxable. Yeah, I could be wrong, but I think it is. It would add to your income, yeah, so you're not going to get a whole lot out of that anyway, yeah. It just sounds like electioneering to me, but anyway, whatever. That's one, okay, that's one topic. The more important topic, I suppose, is uh, the uh, wind generators. Are they going to be in, uh, if they're placed, are they going to be placed in, is it, uh, what is it, uh, uh, the Port of Bass Peninsula or something? Or, the Port of Port Peninsula, yeah. Port of, oh, and they're going to be out on the, where the French, a lot of the French are, right? Well, there's actually a map, if anyone's uh, so inclined to have a look about the generators general area with which these 164 wind turbines will be, yeah. Okay, what's that, on a website or something? Yeah, I think if I, if you go to the government's website, you will find their most recent proposal. Uh, I can also try to find it myself. I had a look at it one time before uh, okay. when this was very early on, but if you send me an email, I'll try to find the link and zip it oh, over see, to you. I, have, I haven't got email anymore. I have to go to the library. Oh, okay. but yeah, there, I only get there infrequently. Yeah, there's a there's reference to the area that's being considered for the wind turbines on the Port of Port Peninsula. Yep. Well, the reason I want to know that is because... I'm 
wondering, I'm not an electrical engineer, of course, but at the same time, I know that, uh, you know, uh, sources of electricity, like generators, whatever, they do uh, generate electromagnetic field, and 164 of them or whatever, uh, and Risley said it could be three times that. So uh, would the accumulated, would that be an accumulated magnetism, and how would that affect, uh, where's the nearest uh, uh, dwelling uh, to those uh, those towers, right? Well, I think the buffer was one kilometer from any any piece of infrastructure, any home, any building, any commercial entity. I believe the buffer zone is reported as one kilometer minimum. But but I wonder, would that be enough with any between 164 and about 480, you know what I mean? Not particularly. Uh, what what would the issue be if the buffer is a kilometer? Uh, this is a genuine question because I don't know the answer. Well, that's what I'm saying. Would uh, I'm not an electrical engineer, as I said, but I'm wondering... Uh, would the numbers alone, would that accumulate the magnetic effect? You know what I'm saying? I suppose. Uh, well, anything that adds to the magnetic field will, will have implications for the effect. Right. Uh, just quickly, Jim, so that we set the record straight here on GST, the GST rebate is not taxable, so you'll get the entirety of the $225 oh, in this right. most recent boost. There you go. That's the. F- well, it's a wonder because, uh, as you know, the 500 we got a year or so ago, that was taxable. You know, that, uh, that they did tax me on that. <laughs> well, uh, are you talking about the one-time bump on your old age security? Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, well, of course, that goes straight into your revenue stream, but apparently the GST tax credits are not taxable. I'm just sharing okay. the information as shared to me. Yeah. I thought that was HST we were getting. Uh, is that the same thing? I don't know. GST, HST, yeah. Oh, it's the same thing, is it? Oh, okay. Oh, well, okay. GST is the federal implication. HST is the harmonized tax, so when I pay right. tax here, I exactly. pay the harmonized tax, which includes yes. province and federal GST. Yeah, okay. Okay, good enough. Yep. Okay, well, that's what I wanted to know. I'm just wondering if they've considered all the uh, in detail. And, you know, the public doesn't know. The public, or like I say, we're not engineers. The public doesn't know uh, the implications of all that accumulated, um, you know, magnetism from that many towers in there. Well, whatever. How, how far you'd have to be away not to be affected by it. And, and sound and everything else, you know what I mean? I think the, the sound was- issue, like it was the big whoosh that people report. Uh, some of the working group on the West Coast uh, went to a wind farm in Ontario and uh, Mayor Sheila Cornick who is one of the people who's you know been talking about the project of course she's the mayor down in Port of Port she said that the noise was not a concern so I've never been close enough to them to to say it well I take her word for it if she's uh, she was right there affected by it and she went up there and saw it for herself so yeah yeah, okay so that's not but I'm still wondering about the magnetism thing you know what would the magnetism impact be on humans is it an annoyance or is it a well well, no I mean uh, you know uh, we're all okay um, we're all advised not to get too close, in, for instance, to a microwave tower that's active because it, it can literally cook you like a microwave oven, right? So I don't know if these kind of uh, uh, just ordinary electric power, uh, the, the the signal, you know, the wave that's generated from that, I don't know if that would affect uh, the human body, you know, the internal cells or blood or whatever the hell, you yeah, know? I don't know the answer to that, but I absolutely, you know, given the fact that there's wind farms in many parts of the world and I don't know if that's ever been a reported implication a negative implication on people's personal health and I can't answer the questions because I don't know but there's certainly people I can reach out to that give us an understanding of what turbines mean so far as magnetic field and a safe buffer from residences and and the accumulation of uh, well of course depending how many you have and how far they are from humans right yeah, I can find someone who can answer that question with some authority, because yeah, well, I can't. That'd be great. That'd be great. Okay. Okay, thanks. Thanks, Jim. All the best. Okay, bye. Bye-bye. So your GST rebate is not taxable. And I, I mean, I didn't know the answer to the question because I've never had one, so I just didn't know. Uh, 
And also, that's an interesting question. You know, some of the different issues regarding this, some people might be concerned with the engineering and the noise and the implication for migratory routes and the flora and the fauna and water. I mean, all of these things considered, we can try to broach them piece by piece if people are so inclined to hear these types of answers. As it pertains to the magnetic field, I have no idea, absolutely none. But if, well, Jim's interested in it, but that means probably some others are also interested in it, so we'll see if we can get a guest who has the appropriate engineering background to talk about what that actually means and break it down for us in layman's terms, if at all possible. Uh, how are we doing on the phone there, Dave? All right, buddy. Uh, so when we come back, Oral, appreciate your patience, talk about the home invasions, and Angela Crockwell, she's the executive director at Thrive. I said it was a ride for refugees. It's not. It's a ride for refuge. Don't go away. Join us for On Target, one hour in which Linda Swain examines topics that mean the most to you on target weekday afternoons at one on your vocm welcome back to the show let's go to line number four say good morning to the executive director at thrive that's angela crockwell good morning angela you're on the air good morning patty how are you great today how about you i'm doing good i'm just calling now i wanted to make you and your listeners aware of a fundraiser that we have coming up on october 4th called ride for refuge and we are raising funds for our Blue Door program. Um, so the ride, it, it's either a ride, a bike ride, or a walk. Um, and it's two loops, so people can do a 2.5 or a 5K walk or a 10 or 20 kilometer bike ride. And as I said, all the proceeds will go directly to support our Blue Door program. And we've had so much community support for that program. Um, and I just wanted to make people aware this fundraiser is happening and certainly ask if people can join or support or donate or volunteer. We would certainly uh, appreciate that. You and I have talked about the Blue Door program. It was in the news where you lost your federal funding, I believe it was. And it's to try to help people escape the sex trade, especially young new Flanders and Labradorians, or young people, period. Yes, absolutely. So we did, uh, in f the end of February of this year, lose our five-year federal funding. And you're right, we were all over the news and trying to raise awareness for the need for that program. So as a result of that loss of funding, we went from a full staff complement of five, but we still have two staff who are fully dedicated to operating that program and providing support to people. So we've had such great support from uh, our community that right now the two staff people um, are kind of guaranteed for a while. We feel like we've reached some level of stability for that funding, but we obviously need to continue to raise money so we can ensure the long-term sustainability. Let's talk about the real-life implications, because off the top of the show this morning, I mentioned one uh, issue in the courts about a human trafficking charge. You know, we don't think about it in this province, and we think we've got this sleepy little place, but come on, it's right there. It might be in the shadows, which is also part of the problem. Uh, so... What are the real-life implications of the loss of federal funding for the Blue Door program? It's great that you have some stability with two out of five staffers, but give people an example of what it really means. Yeah, so it certainly means that we have less capacity to support people who need our help. And as you mentioned, I think this is probably the first time we've seen an, a uh, charge laid specifically for human trafficking. Um, our organization staff are not surprised, but I do think sometimes the general public do think that those kinds of things are not occurring here. But when we were operating, even with a staff of five, we maintained a wait list of um, people just waiting to access our services and support. So the need was 
even greater than our five staff could manage. Um, so obviously now down to two staff, uh, there's significant uh, challenges that we're facing to make sure people have access to the supports that they need. Because as you can imagine, people who have been sexually exploited or trafficked is a very traumatic um, experience for most people. And um, they, re they deserve and require a, um, a level of support to help them heal from, from that traumatic experience and to be able to move on. Tell us about the Ride for Refuge one more time, what people need to do if they'd like to participate. Yeah, absolutely. So if people want to go to Thrive's website, which would be thrivecyn.ca, you'll see a link um, to the national uh, website, and people can register there. They can register a team. They can register to just join um, and participate, or they can donate or volunteer. So we're relying on the community to really step up and make this a successful fundraiser um, and, again, to, to support our Blue Door program. I appreciate the time. Good luck with it, Angela. Thanks very much. Appreciate it, Patty. Pleasure. Bye-bye. That's Angela Crockwell, the Executive Director over at Thrive. Let's go to line two. Oral, you're on the air. Uh, good morning, Patty. How are you, Patty? Buddy? Okay, how about you? Patty, I got to say I loved your voice, okay? Okay, Your thanks. Voice sounds really good. Anyway, what I want to I want to get on. Uh, I asked my doctor when you got COPDC and he want you want to wear the mask. Mm-hmm. Okay, what's that thing called from your doctor? Is it exempt or something like that? Well, you're trying to get an exemption from wearing a mask. Uh, my uh, well, I I can't really wear a mask. I have COPDC. Well, where do you have to wear a mask? Uh, down to the army is required right away. You got to have it on. They won't let you in the door. And my friend here, my lady friend here is in a wheelchair, and I'm taking care of her. And they, they haven't got a clue what I'm going through, but that's besides the point. Right. Well, yeah, there are some people who can qualify for an exemption. I think they've been fairly rare. But, yeah, if you if you need one, for instance, to present to it, enter to whatever facility you mentioned, the Army, yeah, you'd have to yeah. go through a doctor. That's right. Yeah. And now I want to talk about my, my own personal home invasions in Alberta. Sitting down April the 20th, having a beautiful day, and all of a sudden, knock, knock, and they came prepared. They came in, they sprayed the house, they hit me with the swords. It, my friend got half his head cut off in the kitchen. I ran right through the glass, ran right through the door to get away. Two days after, Orl had another home invasion. Okay? Wow, it's terrifying. Now, no, I'm just saying, I'm just saying. Like, I don't complain and I don't whine. I'm just saying. And I was coming home last night. And then I heard about that home invasion. I can't believe it. If Everybody has an opinion, Patty, right? Yeah. Am I right? As far as I'm concerned, if you got the evil enough to go up and hurt somebody, you can sit in a chair and fry. As far as I'm concerned, Patty. Okay. Uh, I mean, I think you know it's really... You know what I mean? And that's not a bad way now, trust me. Well, uh, even if it is, so be it. These are dangerous people, and they've exactly. scared the hell out of a lot of folks. So I can only imagine the two uh, homeowners or the families that were in there, what they experienced. And, of course, exactly. I think that rippled through the community yesterday. I mean, when the RNC yeah. says lock your door and don't answer it if you don't recognize someone, obviously people are going to have a little pang of fear in their belly. Of course they will. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And now, Naturally. see, that's what, 
after my home invasion, that's the first thing with one uh, police officer was pleasant, and the other guy was more or less yada yada. So that's what we do in Newfoundland. We open up, we unlock our doors. All them days are gone. They're gone. Now today you got to watch your back. Yeah, right? I, I, and I then, think that's fair. And then, Patty. Wow. And then right after the home invasion, I had to uh, fill out all, you know, how to get the victim's conversation and all that. Mm-hmm. So I, uh, anyway, I end up, I had my mom, God love my mom. They flew me home because she had that Alzheimer's dementia, right? You understand? Yes. So, so now I'm phoning back to Alberta, and I said, I got to come back now. And uh, my buddy said, well, I, got, I don't care. We got back a billion dollars. That don't cut it. Now, today, as we speak, I'm fighting for my life. I have really, really bad anxiety and depression. Right? And I was in the mental hospital out there 20 or 30 times. I was fighting for my life. And then I phones up and I says uh, to the about my victims' conversation. You know what they said? You know what took it away from oral? Mm-hmm. The Kobik. It's all changed to Kobik. You don't get your money now. I don't want my money, right? Okay. You understand? I, I think I do. Yeah, it's hard, Patty. Well, I hope I you're need. doing okay now, or I oh, appreciate it. My God, I, I come home because it's God's country. Patty, can I share something with you this morning? If you can do it quickly, yeah. Yeah. I want you to play a song for me, Playing with the Queen of Hearts. <laughs> Please. Please. The Queen beats the ten. <laughs> Thanks a lot, Oral. Appreciate the time. Take good day, care. Buddy. All right. Everybody. Okay, bye-bye. bye-bye. Uh, quick bouquet before we get to the break. Line number one, Doug, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. First-time caller. Welcome to the show. Uh, I had an experience traveling across Newfoundland there last Thursday. Uh Myself and my wife were on a, a trip to the west coast to the Codroy Valley. Uh, we pulled in uh, uh, another set of Howley, I guess, to have a, a lunch on the side of the road, like a with the uh, campfire south. And my wife took with a severe headache. And anyway, uh, she sat down to eat with me, of course. She couldn't do nothing. I was watching her, and she couldn't hold the fork. She couldn't, like, uh, she'd get the fork again, and then it slipped out. And like I said, took with a severe headache. So she said, I got to go to the truck and get some bed, though. Anyway, between the jigs and reels, I could see there was something coming on. So I was watching her and watched her. And anyway, uh, I said, Are you okay? And she said, Oh, yeah, I'm okay. But I said, No, you're not okay. I said, uh, I think you're coming down with a stroke. So anyway, uh, between the jigs and reels, I had to get the pots and pans and everything all back together in the truck try to do what I could. We were by ourselves, so we had no company. So I had a buddy in Pasadena, which was, uh, I was telling him, because I was going to his place for the night. So I said, uh, can you make a phone call for me to see if uh, there's a hospital in Deer Lake? I think uh, Shirley's coming down with a severe uh, stroke. Anyway, between the jigs and reels, uh, Deer Lake wasn't open, so it was only a clinic there. I thought it might be a hospital. So anyway, he called me back. He said, no, there's only a clinic and it's closed. So it was late, 7 o'clock in the evening. So anyway, uh, he said, do you want me to call uh, the hospital in uh, Cornerbrook? I said, yes. What about an ambulance? And I said, uh, yeah, we probably should uh, arrange the ambulance. So thank you to my buddy Wayne in Pasadena. 
was a great uh, contributor to uh, the fast actions with me. So anyway, when we got to his place in Pasadena, Damas came right behind me. She didn't know anybody. She didn't know me. And anyway, from there we went to, she was took by Amos to uh, Cornerbrook Memorial, the fourth floor. Everybody was waiting, the team, the doctors and nurses. And Anyway, she got nothing but the best of care, I must say. It was thanks to everybody's quick response that everything worked out well. Uh, she got out of the hospital Monday. Uh with very little, if any, paralysis, only uh, a little weakness on her right side, which got to do exercise. And I came come in the uh, healthcare at Western Memorial at the fourth floor, and especially Dr. Maru, who done a fantastic job. Well, I'm glad things worked out for you, whether it be the role that your buddy played and or the healthcare professionals. Like we often say, there's lots of issues regarding healthcare and the delivery of healthcare in this province, but when you get in the system, 99 times out of 100, you engage with a top quality, compassionate, dedicated healthcare worker. And in this case, I'm glad it worked out for you and your wife. And I appreciate the story and the first time call, Doug. Thank you, sir. And, uh, like I said, I, I, you couldn't get no better care than what you got. And also, Patty, I want to thank all the phone calls that came in and text messages. Uh, people are very sincere, and like I said, the care was beyond beyond measure. Really good news, Doug, and I appreciate your time, sir. Wish your wife well for me. I will. Thank you, Patty. Take good care of yourself. Yeah. Bye. Bye-bye. Uh, it is time for a break. When we come back, the Liberal member for Lake Melville, Perry Trimper, he's in the queue. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number five. Say good morning to the Liberal member serving the folks of Lake Melville. That's Perry Trimper. Good morning, Perry. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. That sounded different, didn't it? It did sound different. You know, the first question before we get into how it all worked out to be back in the Liberal fold is someone said, well, you got elected as an independent. The people expected an independent member. Now you find yourself back in the Liberal caucus. Have you heard any disappointment or any sort of negative feedback on this particular move from your constituents? Yes, I, I'm, I'm hearing all sides. I mean, people are thrilled. Uh, you know, people are, some are disappointed. They're saying, why are you doing this now? And so on. So, you know, I, I've got to thank the OCM. I've had a good opportunity yesterday with Linda Swain and with Jerry Lee Mackey and, and others that are inquiring and so on to have an opportunity to explain. You know, the last several months, I felt that, uh, I first of all, I enjoyed being an independent. Uh, it's... Uh, it's it's really interesting to just be focused on the sort of the nonpartisan world and really rely on um, pursuing the energy on your constituents and solving those problems. But what I was finding increasingly, and I think anyone else in the province will agree, that as the problems get more and more complicated, and Lake Melville is a very strategic district, I think it's an extremely important one, some great challenges and opportunities, but you find that after a while, you need the you need the ministers, you need the premier on side, and you need to be sitting across the table from them working on the solutions. Similarly, the premier was finding the same thing. So we found ourselves several months ago uh, across the table trying to figure what we're going to do with Mud Lake, um, how we could uh, help those that are battling addictions and homelessness in, in Upper Lake Melville, and many other issues. So um, we started working down that path, and and last week uh, we decided that. Uh, uh, let's let's get back together. So that was the announcement. But it's it's the complexity of these problems, and yeah, you can raise them and you can articulate the arguments and the points as as much as you can. But uh, 
uh, it's it does require that cooperation, and I was pleased to to see that and feel that the last throat uh, this whole year. Who approached who? Um, I'm not sure who started. Uh, <laughs> we we started with just conversations and text messages on inquiries and certain things that were going on, and then agreed to sit down and have a chat. Um, but it was early in 2022. I, I note some of the uh, criticisms. I was watching Twitter this morning. I'm, I'm actually down in Port of Basque right now, but I was catching up on some of the commentary and the different theories and so on. There's really no other conspiracy to this other than an MHA really wanting to find a way to, to get these solutions in place. And, uh, you know, Mud Lake, for example, was an extremely important uh, file for me. I've held up the legislature. Uh, numerous petitions and questions, particularly over the last two years when, uh, you know, we had a million-dollar study, uh, the most comprehensive flood risk forecast mapping done in the country that told us that this community, large portions of it, are going to get hit again. So do we sit and wait for that to happen? I've been watching friends, neighbors, uh, their health mentally and physically deteriorate each spring breakup. Uh, crossing their fingers with this river roulette situation we've been in. So uh, with that argument, that scientific argument that, uh, you know, we, we were going to have to deal with this all over again within the next 20 years, uh, I finally managed to get the traction uh, to say, let's let's get those folks out of there. And those who want to stay, um, you know, we're, we're going down a path of... Uh, of developing a social enterprise, uh, an opportunity to turn it into a viable tourism destination. So it was complicated, several departments involved. Um, I couldn't have done that just by standing on the other side of the aisle and uh, making great arguments, but uh, not getting the traction. To me, that says that you've had a feeling or it was clear to you that you could not get things done in Mud Lake without joining the government side. Uh, potentially, potentially. Um, I uh, I would say though that the, it really came the other way around. So uh, whether <laughs> is it uh, I'm not sure what could really be first, but at the end of the day, uh, you needed to you needed to see the traction. Um, we were making progress on a variety of fronts. I can point back to, for example, the premier appointing this acute response team in June and and responding to the serious issues of communities raising in terms of their safety, concern for those who are battling addictions, and his immediate response to appoint this acute response team. Signs like that were showing me that he was trying his best to respond to the needs of, of uh, Lake Melville, and I felt that uh, I felt comfortable uh, in continuing talks about uh, whether or not we go back and sit together. So uh, with the progress we've made, I felt, okay, we can do this. So what's going to be instituted regarding, you mentioned addictions, for instance, because that problem is as deep as it is wide. So what specifically do you have in plan for Mud Lake and or the rest of Labrador? Because we know it's an issue everywhere. Okay, so first of all, on the, on the addiction side and, and the serious challenge that the, the community is dealing with and all of Labrador is dealing with, there are two groups uh, involved. One is called an action team, and this comprises uh, professionals, uh, people working on the front line, counselors. Uh, people involved in addictions, uh, treatment and therapy, uh, the indigenous groups and so on, they are looking at a longer-term solution. We are obviously going to have to, as a, as a community, as a hub community for Labrador, there's a role that uh, Happy Valley Goose Bay will be involved with in providing sort of a centralized support 
to help these folks who are dealing with very complicated, and each of them has their own individual complicated uh, past that's, uh, that we really need to get to the bottom of. Just moving people around, uh, enforcement, arrests, you know, are not going to get to the root of the problem. And uh, so I'm pleased to see that action group in place in June. The premier appointed this acute response team, which is looking at the more immediate issues. You know, how do we keep people safe? And further to your question, um, you know, John Abbott, the Minister of Children, Seniors and Social Development, uh, been speaking to him lately because we're concerned, you know, winter's already approaching and uh, we do not need any more situations of people uh, perishing or suffering great injury and exposure to harsh conditions. So um, we're looking at how do we keep people safe and that involves both the community and those that are... Um, you know, are battling these serious addiction problems. So just so people know what we're talking about with Model Lake specifically regarding relocation, the mm-hmm. province used to have a 90% threshold in voting in favour of, and then they, the government takes a 10-year look and sees if we can save $20 million before they even accept the results of the vote. That's been reduced to 75%. It's been waived in full for Model Lake. We heard one resident, I believe his name was Rumbold, say he's not going anywhere. So while some four or five homes may indeed say, or households might say, okay, I'm taking the money and we're going to go somewhere else, if the remaining even a half a dozen residents. It doesn't change the water on the beans for the implications of flooding or what have you. So what will actually be achieved by the waiving of the voting threshold? Because some people are going to stay. Yeah, if you listen and go back and look at every single quote I've made on this problem, I've never talked about relocating Mud Lake. Um, I, I know Mr. Watson uh, rumbled very well, and there are others who I know are determined and will, and, and rightly so, stay in that beautiful community, and I will be there to support them. The problem is, is the folks that are at lower elevation and those most adjacent to the Churchill River, the province's longest river. When that breaks each spring uh, and the ice starts to back up and so on, they are extremely vulnerable. Yes, we now have a good forecasting system where we can uh, tell whether this is going to happen so we can move them, but their homes are still there. And in five years ago, uh, they were knocked off their foundations. So I argued then five years ago, and I see Mr. Joyce is weighing in this morning with some criticism on this, so that's why I wanted to call in, and I argued with him at the time that we really should be focusing on getting them out of the way, because they were in harm's way then, they still are now. So this offer has been all about responding to a very sophisticated prediction that uh, we're going to have to deal with this again as individuals living in those homes and as a province responsible. So uh, to me, it wasn't about thresholds of acceptance. Had the community, you know, unilateral, I'm sorry, uh, from a, a consensus across the board said, yes, we'd like to move, I think we could have implemented the relocation policy and just gotten on with it. But many want to stay. And uh, I see an opportunity to also support them. It was really about getting people out of danger. What implication does it have for the class action lawsuit? Because they blamed it on Muskrat. An independent review in 2017 said it was because of the ice blocking the river. So does this have an implication on the lawsuit? I'm not sure. Um, you know, separate pillars of society. I'll let the courts and the justice, uh, you know, uh, rule through the, through those proceedings. I'm certainly cooperating with everything that I know and what I've been able to make available so both to the plaintiffs and to those com- completing the investigations. I, you know, as somebody who lives in this community, uh, just adjacent, uh, well aware of the dynamics and the, and the fear and what people went through uh, five years ago, it was traumatic. And it's still traumatic. And uh, I understand their frustration. 
Um, in the meantime, I think it's really important. We can't wait for a conclusion of a court proceeding to see whether or not someone's right or wrong and they deserve, they deserve to receive uh, compensation. I felt it was really important to get them out of the way before, uh, before we do have another uh, serious issue. You know, even if it's not about the dam, because the independent report is, is what it is, but do you have any update? Because when we talk about Muskrat Falls, we talk about GE software and the Labrador Island link and the potential for long blackouts through the long-range mountains and synchronous condensers. What about the integrity of the dam itself? Is there any reports on it? Because even if, that not what, even if that's not what caused the flooding mud lake, mud lake, it might be in the future if there's a problem. Any update on, you know, the fiscal, uh, uh, pardon me, the, uh, the structure itself? I, I've heard nothing new, Patty, but I think I can refer back. I'm drawing on some memory here now. You know, I think there were three separate studies that looked at the stability of the North Spur and the stability of the dam and so on. It's been built to uh, national standards. I mean, you know, the project itself and its construction and those who worked on that project, I, I feel, you know, it's world class. You know, the problem has been in in, in the, the financing of it, uh, you know, and the wisdom of proceeding as it did. I can point to other serious issues that were made long before the first shovel went into the ground around that project. Um, that's really caused it and given it such a reputation. At the end of the day, when it, it, when it does start generating electricity and revenue for the province, I, I think we'll look back and and hopefully feel uh, better about it. But uh, it's it's been earlier decisions that have continued to plague it. Uh, uh, sorry, last one for you. Let's talk like Melville. There was ongoing concerns about the neurotoxin, which is methylmercury, and the concentration mm-hmm. w- what happened downstream in Lake Melville, which is unique because it's an estuary. So what do we know about the ongoing examination and testing being done in Lake Melville? Let's see where we are. Patty, I'm so glad you raised that point. Um, my background is science, and yes, I was uh, on the consulting team that worked on various predictions. I was involved in the terrestrial wildlife world, including the effects of methylmercury. I will refer everyone in this province, please go to the environment, uh, uh, the provincial environment website and look at the, uh, the results that are being collected monthly and you will see the values that are coming in there. The most sophisticated monitoring system of methylmercury in the country is happening on the Churchill River. Those levels, you see a slight increase each August as the water warms, and then you see them decline. This has been going on now for the last several years. It is nowhere near the disaster predictions that some are espousing, particularly out of Harvard University, um, and uh, it's, it's well within the limits that Health Canada and other scientists all predicted it's it's being watched very carefully it's being studied and just a few days ago the uh, province appointed uh, uh, you know new folks in charge of overseeing ensuring that the uh, ecosystem is, is is carefully watched and to be sure that everyone's safe up there so but i want to reassure everyone that the, the levels are coming in just as they were predicted and it's not the issue that has been uh, originally um proposed i appreciate your time this morning perry thank you Thanks, Patty. Take care. Bye-bye. This is Perry Trimper. He's now back in the Liberal Caucus. He's a Liberal member for Lake Melville. Let's take a break. When we come back, we're going to the west coast of the island. Say good morning to the mayor of Stephenville. That's Tom Rose. Don't go away. Got plans for midnight? Bring your VOCM along with the best soundtrack for every night, anywhere. The VOCM All Night Show. Midnight on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number one, as advertised, say good morning to his worship, the mayor of the town of Stephenville. That's Tom Rose. Mayor Rose, you're on the air. Yeah, Mr. Daly, how are you doing today? Great this morning, thank you. How about you? Wonderful. 
So, you know, there's been all kinds of conversation and predictions about whether or not the proposed purchase of the Stephenville Airport would go as according to Mr. Diamond's plan. But this news, uh, I guess it broke yesterday and I spoke about this morning. The memorandum of understanding that the Diamond Aerospace Incorporated Group has signed with Duxian Motors just feels like another real positive step in the right direction. Yeah, absolutely. You know, uh, since we've spoken, uh, Patty, uh, some big things have happened in Stephenville. Obviously, on August 23rd, we had the World Summit, G7 leaders, uh, Chancellor of Germany, uh, Olaf Scholz, and our Prime Minister signing a Green Energy Accord. And that really kind of ties in to me with what's happening with uh, the Diamond Group induction now with this MOU that got signed. So whether it's uh, energy, uh, whether it's uh, fuel being developed, let's say right here in Stephenville, Newfoundland with green hydrogen world energy, it's about reducing the greenhouse gas uh, component, uh, reaching net zero by 2050, and all the companies of the world are looking at that. So reduction, they have a hybrid engine that will actually uh, be for aircraft such as the CRJ, which is uh, built in Montreal with Bombardier, and will make those engines so much more fuel efficient, energy efficient, and so forth. So since the G7 announcement, since World Energy, since the Diamond announcement, Duction seems steamable is the perfect fit. And, there's, and I'll just speak a couple of reasons why I think personally it is. Uh, first of all, uh, the plans for Diamond with the drones, that's a big part of that MOU. Secondly, you know, when we had that G7 here, there were 25 of the top CEOs of Germany in Stephenville, Newfoundland, plus CEOs from all over Atlantic Canada. But just the collective capital that were in Stephenville that day for that significant, groundbreaking, historic announcement for Newfoundland and Labrador, it was in the trillions of dollars and engineering in Germany and so forth. So to me, from a Rick Pilgrim perspective, what a perfect site. Steamboat is going to grow. And logistically and transportation-wise, and I've said this a couple of times, but I, I can't stop saying it because I believe in it so much, is that, Patty, if you went across this country, there's nowhere where you've got the ability to do intermodal, go from sea to air, air to sea. And that is so important in industry and in heavy industry. So you could actually bring in a cargo plane and fill them up full of these jet engines that uh, Duxon's going to build and fly them into France. You know, so that's that's the type of infrastructure. And the closest to us would be Seattle, Washington. So just for clarification, I know there the plan is to build a new 70,000-square-foot hangar. Does the story read that it's simply for the integration and installation of these engines into the, uh, the unmanned drones, the cargo drones? Or are they actually building the engines right there in Stephenville if this MOU ends up in a deal? Yeah, well, from what I understand, uh, with a 70,000-square-foot facility, uh, the engines could actually be built uh, there. I'm not 100% sure on that statement. It's a good question that you asked me, but whether the engine would come there, they would uh, be uh, retrofitted into the drones or retrofitted into CRJs that would fly in here and have a change, engine change out. So I'm not sure on the specifics from an MRO perspective. I think they refer to that in the aerospace industry. But uh, I'm kind of thinking is is to build the, these engines in Stephenville. And, and when you think about it, if you go across Canada right now, the closest place to us, Slemon Park and PEI. 
Actually, it was my first posting when I was in the Air Force. When I was an Air Force base. But they do some great aerospace stuff. Then you go to IMP in Halifax. Then you go to Bombardier. But now it's our turn. I think Steamboat's going to be a green energy hub for uh, for hydrogen, but it could also be an energy hub for aerospace and for duction and for green and, and investments. Yeah, and you can add provincial airlines to the aerospace world here in this province oh as well. Oh, my God, absolutely. Uh, yeah. Last one. So the proposal from John Risley, World Energy GH2, of course, there's always going to be people supporting and people opposed. If you're taking the temperature of people in the region throughout the Port of Port Peninsula, is it more, in your opinion, anecdotally, more people in favor or opposed, or what are you hearing? Uh, hands down, 90-something percent of the people, Patty, are behind us. And for so many reasons, you know, it's for jobs. It's a green, clean, no, uh, uh, very little impact on the environment from from my perspective. And and I I get educated on the environment file very, very well. So just think about it. 124 turbines on the Port of Port Peninsula would be the footprint of 124 homes. Uh, That's only about 15 acres of land. So if you look at an open pit mine... Uh, look at Lower Coles. They've carved off a thousand acres down there, and that's been good for the peninsula. They cre- created jobs, but it's a little frustrating too. And I've heard John Risley actually. We uh, sponsored the uh, luncheon at the Atlantic Canada Business Conference uh, last week in St. John's, but it was a little frustrating frustrating for me too because. Uh, we're not in harmony with the Atlantic provinces when it comes to EIS and our our uh, our processes and procedures. And, you know, John Rizzi and them, when they apply for the Crown, Crown Lands, Patty, I will tell you this. The legislation was in place, and here's our procedures, and they've sent millions up to this point. And then all of a sudden, government changed their mind and going to change the process because there's other interests. Well, you know, if that was in the private sector, there'd be litigation on the books, probably. But it's government, and and I'm always a little concerned that we we have too much legislation. And, and I'm a big supporter of the environment. There's nobody. I'm, I'm a farmer, and uh, and and I live on the land, and I pick berries, and you know, I know all that stuff so well. But at the end of the day, if we, we have the most pieces of legislation than any province in the country. Okay, so that adds up to additional red tape. But I'm just so concerned that when you take on a project that's a world energy, a world energy crisis, a G7, a democratic, a sovereignty issue, you bring a G7 summit into Seymour, Newfoundland in a couple of weeks' notice, and it went off amazingly well because there's an urgency that the bureaucrats, and the leadership in our provincial government must realize the importance of this file. And we do not want to lose that investment and that capital that's coming with World Energy or others that are coming in. Because what World Energy has done is created a catalyst for other companies like Fortescue, Red Earth, all these other companies that are saying, wow, Newfoundland, West Coast, even though the best wind corridor in North America, possibly the world, and it's perpetual. 
And it's some of the things that, you know, we do indeed have some leverage here as well. I mean, people understand bureaucratic red tape and timelines and whatnot, but we also check a lot of boxes. We have the wind, we have the water, we have the deep sea port, we have the proximity to market. So, you know, I get your concern on that front, but it's also hard to replicate what we have insofar as all those four key offerings for green hydrogen export. Uh, very quickly, because yeah. I do have to go with Mary Rose. Uh, no there was a question about the proximity of a wind turbine to any residential area. I, I seem to remember is one kilometer. I have so many numbers bouncing around my poor brain. Is it is it one kilometer? Yeah, it's. Uh, I think it's between 800 meters and 1,000 meters. So it's roughly eight tenths of a kilometer to a kilometer. I think that's the numbers I've got. But here's the interesting little uh, analogy on it. If you were 100 meters from a turb- these whisper quiet, innovative new turbines, it would be the same decibel level as what you're hearing in your fridge in your home. So very little noise from these wind turbines. And, you know, I, I've gone across this country. I've vacationed three times in Canada this year, very short vacations. But I've seen wind turbines all across the country, from Alberta to Cape Breton. And, you know, we have to have an industry so we can have better hospitals, better roads, better schools, uh, better infrastructure, and keep our families home. And this is an industry you want to pick. It's clean, it's green, and I, I can't say enough. And But, you know, there are some people that are totally against it, and I support them for that. They have the right, their opinion. But the greater good and the majority of the people in this region is behind this. Appreciate your time this morning, Mayor Rose. Thank you, sir. Okay. Okay, Patty. Take Bye-bye. care. Bye-bye. Stephenville's Mayor Tom Rose. Uh, let's take a break. Are there great things in store? You betcha. Josh Mee, he's the CEO of Food First NL. He's up after this. Don't go away. And welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number three. Say good morning to the CEO at Food First NL. That's Josh Smee. Hi, Josh. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Uh, we're going to try to help Food First NL every time we can because access to food is so important, and we see the numbers, and they're startling. Great things in store. Looking for some retail partners. First off, what exactly is great things in store, and then how do we attract retailers to partner up with Food First? Yeah, so Great Things in Store is a project that we're going to be running we, for the next couple of years. And the goal is to work with food retailers around the province uh, to figure out what we can do to improve ex- food accessibility, especially for lower-income folks uh, in their communities. So, like, we know that retailers are just such a huge part of the food system, right? Most of us get most of the food that we eat from a store. And so what this project is, is it'll give us uh, time and some staff and some money to help uh, do pilot projects with stores around the province uh, to figure out what could work to make those stores even better supports for their communities. That could be everything from, you know, physically changing stores around, helping with supply chain things, community consultations. It's really a big, flexible project. But the goal is at the end of these two years, we'll have some some ideas that we can scale up about how to how to strengthen, strengthen retail. And I think that's, that's super important right now, especially with cost of living shooting up, a lot more people are becoming more and more dependent on their local retailer because it's not as affordable to, to travel to go get food. So the retailer will get some food first horsepower through the, the issues that you just mentioned there. But how will that improve the lives of the folks living in those communities? Like what are the practical outcomes here that a partnership can mean for access, price point or what have you? 
Yeah, so I think that's exactly right. There's a few places we could see things uh, things happening, right? So, so, and we're talking already to retailers we're, as we're recruiting for this project. So part of it is going to be going out to the community around that retailer, seeing what folks need, what what barriers they're they're encountering, what food they want to have more access to. But then some of it might be if uh, retailers need some support in changing their stores around. Maybe there's a, a new piece of equipment that's needed to, to make it easier to have fresh food on site uh, for longer, say. Uh, some of it might be supply chain things. So we know sometimes getting access, especially to locally produced food, can be really tricky. So there might be some things around that. There might be some changes to how food is arranged and presented. Uh, and there might be some programs to, to work on food prices for some of the basics. So I think there's a few ways to get at it. And we've been looking now. The There's a few places in the world that are working hard on this, particularly in Australia, actually, and so we have some good examples kind of on the books that we can look to, but the first step's going to be sitting down with, with retailers and with the community around them and doing some planning. For any pilot program, there will be intended goals and outcomes. How do you measure whether or not it's worked? Because it's always tricky to know that, you know, you might indeed have this great partnership with this retailer in one community or another, but does it have the goal that it was intended to strike? So how do you measure whether or not it's been successful? Yeah, that's a good question. And this project, we're lucky, actually, because the project's being happening in partnership with a research team based at Memorial um, that have a grant from the Canadian Cancer Society. Because one of the things um, that's coming down the pipe here is that uh, folks like the Canadian Cancer Society are looking at work like this because they're saying, okay, uh, one of the big cancer causes is diet. And if there are interventions that happen that uh, give people a, 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 a better diet at home, that can have some cancer implications and so that means that we've got this research team down that they'll be doing things like the community level surveys they'll be they'll be talking to folks they'll be they'll be able to gather some of that data because i think what we you know within a pilot project there's going to be limits right we, we you know we're this is just a start but we're you know you'd hope to see uh, a real shift in you know what kind of food is available uh and who is buying it and some of that data will hopefully be able to gather through the stores right because they're tracking uh what they're selling and some of that data we might go out to the community and say hey you know are you more we're able to eat the foods that you want to eat right now. That's the that's the the key thing, right? Is because it's getting harder and harder for people to pull their diet together in the way that they want, and that's not going to change any time soon without some some creative thinking. This is not an opportunity for people in the retail business that don't already sell food, but who are the types of retailers you're looking for? We're casting the net wide, to be honest with you, Patty. Um, we'd rather people apply and then uh, talk to them. So, you know, anyone who has a retail store that sells food. So that could include grocery stores. That could include corner stores, gas stations, farmers markets, other um, sort of direct to, to consumer uh, shopping uh, spaces, community markets we'd be open to. Basically, exactly like you said, you have to be already selling food because we want to work with you. Um, but uh, if you think that you know you'd like to get involved in consulting with your community and having that kind of support to get to know what your community needs yeah we'd really encourage people to apply so like if i'm a restaurant am i eligible 
Probably not. No, that's a good point. Uh, you'd be, yeah, no restaurants, I don't think. That would be hard for us to work in the way that this is built. So you'd have to be someone who sells food that people are, are taking home. Yeah, that's a good clarification. And what about, you know, people are just really informal setups. You know, I've got my own homesteaded vegetables. I'm set up along the highway or I've, you know, I have a little shop outside my own farm. Are these people going to be eligible to participate because they're the go-to for a lot of folks? Yep, totally. And th- th- we'd encourage those folks to, to apply. That doesn't mean, you know, well, I think we'll try and have a variety of folks within the project, right? But yeah, those folks, absolutely, because I think um, some of those exactly uh, more community-oriented retailers are absolutely big parts of their community, right? And that's the place where lots of people are looking for food. Okay, so uh, I go to your website all the time to see what's going on. So it's foodfirstnl.ca. I assume all the contact info and application forms will be there. Yeah, there's a direct link, foodfirstnl.ca slash retail, uh, and the applications are open until the end of this month, and uh, our program coordinator, Carla Saunders, her contacts are there, so you can reach out to her, and, and she'll walk you right through it. It's not a very complicated uh, process. Appreciate your time as usual, Josh. Good luck with this. Thanks, Patty. Have a good morning. You too. Bye-bye. It's Josh Schmee. He's the CEO at Food First NL. Let's go ahead and take a break for the newscast. When we come back, still plenty of time to speak with you on a topic of your choosing. Don't go away. Take a break. Join us weekdays from 1230 to 1 p.m. as we discuss anything and everything that's happening now. It's all on the table during your VOCM lunch break. Welcome back to the program. It was just a couple of days ago that the folks at Sport NL announced the recipients of the 2022 Provincial Annual Awards for their contributions to sport. Join us on line number five is, again, the executive director down at Sport NL. That's Troy Croft. Morning, Troy. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? Great today. You? Good. Excellent. This is always an exciting time of the year for folks in the athletic community when we know who's winning the big awards. A little bit different this year. Are you having a gala dinner? No. So this this is – well, we're actually getting back to it now moving forward. So we actually have a Hall of Fame event coming up in October and then – again in the spring we'll we'll likely get back to our normal stars and legends type event but this one uh like i say these were 2021 uh winners so we kept it virtual again there was you know uh back in the spring we couldn't do one and then you know throughout the summer it's a busy time it's hard to do one so we left this one virtual so starting october we're doing we got some hall of fame catch up to do uh in terms of inductees for the last uh two three years and then back in, in again in the spring next year we're going to hopefully get back to our normal uh, stars and legends gala i miss him to be honest <laughs> i always enjoyed going to that event and you can only hope with the big backlog of inductees there's not a a whole lot of uh not to be cross but uh, how we make our length speeches <laughs> <laughs> well that's why we, we decided i mean you know and you know hall of famers you got to give them their you know, oh, their I know. Due, they've earned it and you know that's why we separate we're going to do a hall of fame event do a little bit of catch-up. I think we'll have nine or ten inductees going in. So, which, you know, when we're doing a Stars and Legends event, as you know, you know, with the number of awards plus Hall of Fame inductees throughout the night, it's, you know, that's that's roughly around the, the number of awards we give out. So, separated for this year, and then um, next spring we'll get back to the normal uh, normal schedule. Yeah, I mean, it's a great event for anyone who's ever, who's ever attended or would like to attend in the future. You've added a new award this year. What is it? Yeah, we've added uh, Female Coach of the Year this year, and, uh, you know, it was uh, one of those awards that, um, you know, we have Female uh, Athlete of the Year, that sort of thing. So, you know, coaches, uh, female athlete or female coaches, you know, they certainly – 
uh, you know, they put in a lot of effort and work. And, you know, uh, our membership uh, at our AGM last year, um, you know, voted to add that award, which is, you know, which is a great award. It recognizes all the hard work that the uh, that our female coaches put in, uh, you know, in, in our in our sport community. When you look across the nominees and the winners, it really does speak volumes to the kind of caliber of talents we produce and the dedicated volunteers and the world-class coaches and the extraordinary teams. It's really quite something when you look at the list. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you got you got a mixture of everything there in terms of uh, you know uh, different sports. You know, obviously, uh, you know college athletes. You know, world world champions. You know that sort of thing. So it's uh, you know our you know our the success and the hard work of all our athletes, our administrators, our coaches, our volunteers. It's uh, it's really showing. And uh, you know, there's we had a couple of difficult years getting through COVID and stuff like that. So, but they they kept at it and they you know uh, they they found ways to. Uh, still do the training and still do the seminars and all that stuff so uh, it's definitely showing yeah and you know, some college athletes I mean like Abby Nook is the winner in the junior female uh, category that's the Margaret Davis award of course and then Liam Drover Matinen who's a terrific tennis player if anyone's ever seen that boy hit ball it's quite something then you have a world champion in Team Guzju there's always been a lingering question about who qualifies and who doesn't you know Alex Nook doesn't qualify for the men's athlete the senior men's athlete award but Team Guzju does and they're quasi pros how do you make that distinction? Yeah, and uh, yeah, we get that question every year, and yeah. it's you know, it's it's Guju, it's Team Guju most years. But the fact that they are carded uh, athletes, carded uh, national team athletes, that they maintain their amateur status, so it's difficult for us to deny them that uh, you know the fact that they're still amateurs, they are carded athletes with uh, with uh, Sport Canada. So that's the that's the difference where they still maintain their uh, their amateur status. All the different sports that are represented at Sport NL, and I know being involved with minor hockey the fits and starts has been tricky to navigate and you know do we have all the associations inside the umbrella at sport nl that have got through this unscathed everyone's bouncing back to return to what we hope will be normal and full capacity this year what kind of struggles are your members facing yeah, I think I think the, you know for the for the most part from what we're seeing, I think you know a lot of programs are back up and running to where they were. You know, you're hosting events, you're having national championships, Atlantic championships, teams are traveling to these events, they're host, we're hosting them. Uh, but no doubt, there's still I think there's still some organizations out there that are still feeling the effects uh, of COVID again. You know, a lot of small organizations who don't have you know funds to rely on, tucked away, that sort of thing. They're still playing catch up in terms of uh, you know lost programs which means lost revenues, lost fees, you know. Um, so, yeah, so there's definitely some of those that are still out there. But, um, you know, from what I've seen over the summer months, for sure, a lot of those, a lot of our sports are, are definitely, um, you know, back to uh, what we, what you would consider, you know, pretty close to normal activity, if not, you know, normal activity. And, of course, you know, this summer we had, uh, we got a Canada Summer Games in finally, right? So, and we had great success there with nine medals. So, so you know, there's definitely, uh, there's definitely a lot of things happening good things happening and I you know uh, but there's there's 100 percent there's still some of those organizations that are still feeling the effects of COVID. I'm all about I'm all about trying to make sure that everyone wants to get involved in sport gets a chance there's lots of good associations you know Breakaway and others that and Kids Sport NL try to put everyone in but let's talk about the the elite athlete so whether it be the Jada Lees and the Abby Newhooks and the Maggie Connors and folks who've made it maybe 
through determination, skill and support from family and friends. But how do we make sure, whether it be with coaching or traveling support financially, because some of the competition leads to whether or not you're going to be any good. So how do we put intense or enhanced focus on the elite athlete? Because I know we have to concentrate on everyone who wants to play gets to play, but there also needs to be some attention into national success, Atlantic success, international success, and that really comes with a lot of moving parts, coaching, competition, and all kinds of other supports inside, infrastructure included. Yeah, hundred percent, and that's and that's exactly it. I mean, there's you know there's all these different aspects to you know developing an athlete, and you know uh, with 2025 coming, you know we're we're putting more you know the province is putting more funding into that uh, high performance piece, and we're providing uh, a lot of our especially our 2025 sports uh, with some extra funding opportunities. Uh, you know whether it's to hire a coach, whether it's to uh, you know uh, add some training um, training events, competition events, that sort of thing. So there's you know we're definitely looking towards that in terms of more investment uh, in that um, there's also different programs our elite athletes can apply you know there is the premier's athletic awards but there's also an elite uh, athlete assistance program that's out there as well that some of our athletes can apply for now maybe some of them know about it maybe some of them don't but it is available so so i think with 2025 coming there's we're definitely uh, we definitely have a, a a pot of money that we're using to enhance those aspects of, of athlete development coach development as well and official development as well that's all important so uh, you know the, I guess the, the challenge is once we get past 2025 is maintaining and sustaining that extra uh, funding that's there which is which is key I mean you, you know you to me that's a legacy of, of 2025 is the enhanced sports system and then maintaining it past that interestingly uh, Sandy Hickman's coming on here shortly of course we're going to talk about some of the devastation regarding the remnants of Hurricane Earl but he's also the council lead on uh, Canada Games 2025 because infrastructure is part of it uh, congratulations on this terrific list of awards winners this go around and we'll see you again soon troy great thanks for having me patty all the best okay you too bye-bye it's troy croft executive director at sport nl not to shortchange anyone so we gave you the junior male and female winners that's abby nook and liam drover matinin team of the year of course team guzhu official of the year Chantal mcdonald she's involved in soccer executive of the year greg barton in hockey he does a lot of good work volunteer of the year jared butler out in central he's also involved in hockey the female coach of the year is allison kirby with gymnastics male coach of the year jeff thomas and curling of course coaching up team guzhu senior female athlete of the year was Kate Baisley had a great circuit this go around competing in some of the ultra marathon or pardon me the most notable marathons in the world and the senior male athlete of the year one of my faves Liam Hickey when we come back we're talking about racing and we're also talking with the council leader on public works Sandy Hickman who's also a member of the volleyball hall of fame don't go away welcome back to the show let's go to line four and say good morning to the St. John City Council lead on public works that's Sandy Hickman good morning Sandy you're on the air Good morning, Patty, on this uh, fine, dry Wednesday. Yeah, hopefully it dries up a little bit more. As I've mentioned, I've got some cleanup to do in my backyard. Before we get into some of the particulars, what does it take to trigger some additional funding for the city and its residents for the Disaster Financial Assistance Program? That is a question that I can't answer at this time, uh, but, I mean, uh, an event like this, uh, happens more frequently than we would like. Of course, you're right. And uh, last year there was a fairly big storm that there was a lot of wind damage from. This year it's all been flood damage. So you know what's going to happen next year is another storm again going to happen anytime in the next decade or two. So the city has learned a lot from each event, and uh, we do have a very good emergency preparation and uh, staff that are dedicated to that. And of course, the fire departments involved and all emergency measures as well. But in this case, it's really a public works issue 
And I do have to commend all the staff of Hobby Works. They were well prepared. They had uh, all catch basins opened up, and they had uh, they were ready with all their vehicles fueled up and uh, stocked with signs, barricades, closing streets, and that all happened very well. And it was un- and it was undertaken, and people were kept off the uh, the, the streets that were totally flooded. Now that things have receded. Uh, they've been cleaned up, and we were down to now just a, a two or three roads where there's any kind of closure at all. Before we get into the uh, the particulars surrounding this most recent storm, you mentioned Snowmageddon and talk about collaboration with the St. John's Regional Fire Department and whatnot, and lessons learned. What did the postmortem look like? Because, you know, cooperating with Mount Pearl and Paradise and CBS, understanding what kind of equipment is available in the private sector and having a roster sure. of it and a plan to utilize it, what went on there to, insofar as lessons learned? You're right, and that was uh, un- unprecedented, of course, Armageddon. So we hopefully anything else that comes would be less than that, um, but still could be a major emergency, yes. So we've learned that we, c- we can expect cooperation from other municipalities, from the provincial government, and from private sector. And they, we now have a good inventory of what's out there, who's available, who's willing to assist, and that was a great learning lesson and a great a great cooperative effort that uh, I think everybody benefited from. And uh, it, to me, we got through it as well as you could ever expect, but mostly through the cooperation of all parties involved. So, yes, we do have better planning in place now as a result of that. And uh, we have we have a great uh, emergency services section of the city uh, ready for flood, snow, uh, and hopefully not tornadoes, but any kind of emergency we are better prepared for now simply because we have more experience and every time something happens we gain that experience and things are and communications are so good these days anyway that we can instantly bring all this together does that include uh, cooperation with the private sector because we eventually started using private sector heavy equipment yes that's right well you know they aren't our first call there's no question about it we try and take care of everything ourselves right off the bat and uh, in in the case of snow removal and some again, it required more snowblowers, and we were very fortunate to get support from other communities around the province. And I'm not sure how many snowblowers there are in the private sector, but whatever there was, they were there helping. Uh, so you know, it, it it has advanced in terms of available information on who is who has this type of equipment and who willing to assist. We, you know, we'll always have to talk about how we develop, where we develop, and the clearing of uh, trees and all those kinds of things, the building yes, in yes. proximity to rivers, what have you. But for this most recent incident, is the city financially prepared to deal with the aftermath? Yeah, absolutely. And the first priority, though, of course, is taking care of business and getting everything cleaned up, getting uh, Mooney Crescent rebuilt. Uh, Mooney Crescent, at least, is open to the residents now. Uh, there's been a great work out there and uh, the adjacent portion of Old Petty Harbor Road. But that's the biggest area that the city has to concern itself with. But, of course, you know, the, the uh, Paul Antle and New Dock had devastation down there, and they're working through that. It seems like the Waterford River Valley was the hardest hit in the whole area of, of northeast Avalon. Uh, there obviously was flooding in every river, but uh, that area seems to be the most devastated. And it has recovered very well uh, with the ongoing work as well. So the city will determine the cost of that thereafter, and we will find the money for that.
no problem there. Uh, but it, it, it's not millions of dollars for us anyway. It would be tens of thousands, I would think. I, I don't imagine there's going to be any additional repairs done to, for instance, the roads that simply buckled in Kilbride. I know that was cleaned up, tried to give people an opportunity for safe passage yes. without beating up their cars. So that's it for the season, though, is it? Or Well, that's the biggest repair and rebuild. That had to be totally refilled with uh, stone and crushed stone and then repaved and sidewalks put back in place. Of course, that has to be totally rebuilt. And that is underway now, Patty. Uh, it's amazing, actually, how quick the response was on that. So that that is the major one for this, uh, this episode, no question. There, as far as I know, there are no other roads that have been buckled or torn up completely like that. What about where it's built? I mean, I know you can pick up all the houses, move the roads and sidewalks and what have you, but any yeah. further, you know, to make it, to reinforce it or to deal with the water that caused all of that damage? You know, what was the root cause? I've heard people talk about water mains and or the proximity to the river underground and otherwise. So do we, can we change anything to the repair that that road is going to get? Yeah, well, I mean, that area, Patty, I, I believe it's unprecedented to have that kind of damage. So I, our staff will be reviewing this, looking at the cause, uh, where the source was uh, of all the out of the water, which part of the hillside it came from, etc. Reacting to it, as we have had to react uh, for the city, uh, such as Canberra, that rebuild was for over the last from sewer. And to have a higher capacity for for flood events and to get the water down downstream further and more quickly and more efficiently and to avoid further damage of public and private infrastructure. So, you know, as time goes on, if uh, these things are going to continue, of course the city has to react to problem areas. So what does the city, because the city was opposed to the construction of the new mental health facility at the health sciences complex, what do we know about what happened there? I know what Ricky Duggan yeah. uh, from, from VOCM News was there. They say no water got in. Is that your understanding? That's my understanding as well. Of course, it, what, what happened with the berm being built, it changes the, the sort of layout of that, that collection pond. Yeah, uh, that was my next question. What, yeah. did, what did that mean? Because the water didn't stop because there was a berm. No, that's right. It just goes somewhere else. But what they've did, uh, done is raise the berm on the parkway side as well so that there's more capacity. So that allows it to go through that, uh, that bridge, under that bridge um, that goes towards London Pond. And, uh, you know, they want a little heavy-duty flooding over that way, and uh, I really can't. More than that, I, don't, I haven't heard of any damage or anything. Okay, last one before we let me, uh, let you go. You're also the council lead on the preparations for the Canada Games 2025. There was infrastructure yes. shortcomings here, notably the track and the pool. Where are we? What do we need to know about preparations? We're getting there on those. And uh, again, yes, big, big uh, facilities, big work. And we're just waiting to hear uh, uh, funding. So we'll hopefully have news of that in the very near future, next few weeks. So we can just change the layout in the Aquarine and all of a sudden it's okay for national competitions because it hasn't been for years. Where's. That's uh, unfortunate. What? I'm sorry, you're breaking up. Try that again, Sandy. Yeah, and uh, did you, where were you talking about then? What was your question? Well, the Aquarina wasn't uh, able to host national competitions because of configuration inside and deck space, I think, was one of the key areas. So, uh, Oh, okay. We sure. could just reconfigure the pool as it stands without doing anything else and be able to be up to well, the national standards? Yeah, that pool tank is 50 years old, and it's still amazing. The pool deck over the years was, uh, yes, you're right, from 77, it was all bleachers, 3,000 people, I think. Now it's built more for programming. And 
and that will be changed for sure. And uh, so we will get uh, a few hundred for sure uh, spectators. I appreciate the time this morning, Sandy. Thank you, sir. Take care. All the best. You too. Bye-bye. It's Council Lead on Public Works, Sandy Hickman. Uh, Quick note for the residents up in Lab West. Seriously heavy rain, significant water buildup on the railway underpass. Please use caution when driving between Lab City and Wabush today. That's a note coming from the member, Jordan Brown, in particular. Okay, let's take a break. When we come back, we'll talk about Damnable. Is it Damnable Trail Festival and Trail Race? Karen Saunders is the race director. She's next. Don't go away. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number one. Say good morning to the race director of the Damnable Trail Festival and Trail Race. That's Karen Saunders. Hi, Karen. You're on the air. Hi, Patty. Uh, I'm a bit nervous, but we'll get through it. We're going to be fine. So what's cool about this is that, you know, a lot of the trails we use today are the old walking trails. So it's a bit of a old meets new. Exactly what goes on in the trail festival? Uh, at the trail festival, well, we have an opening. We have a lot of goddess, historical walks and everything in Salvage. Uh, we have three kid uh, family fundraisers in Glovertown on Sunday to finish off the festival. Uh, all kinds of hiking on the Eastport uh, Peninsula, down on the beach. And places like that. But uh, the biggest the biggest challenge is going to be the Coastal Ridge Challenge. It's a 22-kilometer uh, race. It's going to go through a 15-kilometer remote trail uh, known as the Coastal Ridge, of course. Uh, it starts in historical salvage. Uh, and the, the trail itself, the first 15 kilometers then would end at Sandy Cove Beach and then continue on to do all their two magnificent beaches on the peninsula, Eastport and Northside. Fantastic. So you talk about some of the more challenging trails. Challenging what, because of elevation or footing or why? It's elevation is a lot of it. It's a lot of rugged terrain. We have a lot of carbon mass, which is quite slippery. But uh, it's a very challenging trail. Anybody that does it will tell you that. Um, I don't know how. It's so rugged. It's beautiful. I worked out. I was part of the trail crew there for three years. Goes to an abandoned community. The scenery is magnificent. But I think would go back to, like you said, is probably the elevation gain. There's a lot of elevation gains there. I'm not sure the exact amount. So there's a couple of trail races. We talked with a fellow who was running in one out in uh, in Corner Brook or in Steady Brook, I guess, coming up uh, shortly. It may have even taken place. I can't remember. And now this one. So what's the impetus to put this festival and race together? Uh, I think the trail racing uh, community has, um, is starting to grow more in the province. And we did it into a festival because we figured as a family, usually these trail runners, they just go – they run the trail, but their families can't participate in anything. But doing this, they could all come for the weekend, and everybody could enjoy. They could do their, their 22-kilometer uh, half marathon, and their families and kids could just go out and enjoy everything. Sounds about right. So on top of the hiking and running or walking, what else is involved in the festival? Uh, well, of course, we had the Newfoundland breakfast on Sunday morning. Uh, there's also a concert at our Beaches Center, uh, which happened to be going on the same time as Abbey Road. And we'll be having a festival dance at the Legion on Saturday night. Uh, 
petty with the historical wax they're serving totens porridge berry and blueberry jam at the hall of age we have a fiddle player at the museum where tours will happen we're also getting tours of the historical church in south age so it's a lot of things oh i suppose i should ask one of the key questions when is it <laughs> <laughs> here you go patty i think we're right on now it's starting on friday to sept- uh, september 30th it will be a trail launch the opening will be at Chuff's Point, the first uh, community on the East Fork Peninsula. And Saturday, October the 1st, there are a lot of things. You go into our website and check it in. And it's over on uh, October the 2nd. And so what's the website? Uh, okay, www.damnabletrail.com. And there were, there's a link there to our race, too. Uh, good luck with it. Congratulations. Let us know how it goes, Karen. Okay, thanks a lot, Patty. Happy to do bye-bye. it. Okay, bye-bye. All right, let's keep rolling. That sounds like a bit of fun. Uh, let's go to line number two. Good morning, Melissa. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. First-time caller, long-time listener. <laughs> I love that more than anything else. Welcome to the show. Well, yeah, thank you. Um, so, Patty, calling today about the current uh, state of our healthcare system here in the province. Uh, so a little backstory on the issues that I'm currently facing. And again, I know that you're familiar with them because I've taken to social media out here a bit about my issues. Uh, but essentially, my general practitioner, my former family doctor, announced that she was closing her practice back in April uh, to go to the collaborative care clinic. Um, so again, this was, you know, the province's proposed solution uh, for the family doctor shortage in our province. Uh, but again, I am left now without a family doctor as well as everybody else who was a, um, a client of hers. Uh, so my final appointment with her was in May of 2022, and at that time, uh, she issued a referral for an urgent pelvic ultrasound for myself, as well as a referral to an OBGYN. Um, at that time, she indicated that if her practice was closed and I did not have a spot at the collaborative care clinic, um, or I didn't have another family doctor, um, I would be able to access my results at a walk-in clinic um, or a private clinic um, once the ultrasound was complete. Uh, so there's no indication uh, given to me that I would uh, my referral would no longer be valid after uh, she left her practice um, and you know it, it, it wouldn't be an issue I guess essentially was what I was under the impression and again I wouldn't think that it would be an issue either simply because you know she didn't lose her license she's still practicing here in the city she's just no longer my dedicated family doctor because she's gone to the collaborative team clinic um, so last going off in August, uh, the last week of August, I did a virtual consult with Maple, which is the um, virtual healthcare provider I have access to for my group insurance program, and um, as my issues were getting worse, and essentially they indicated to me at that point in time that I needed to go uh, for an in-person examination or an in-person consult at a walk-in clinic or an emergency room because I needed a pelvic exam, and I also needed to get my ultrasound moved up. Uh, so I went to the Monday Palm walk-in clinic the next day, um, and again, I know that you've seen this photo, but there was about 50 people lined up outside the clinic. Uh, people had camping chairs with them, and essentially I had to leave after about an hour of waiting in line because, again, I'm having issues with pain and stuff in my pelvic area. So as you can expect, it was, it was quite painful for me to stand on my feet for over an hour. Uh, I managed to get into Planned Parenthood on a cancellation later on that week, which I was very lucky and I'm so thankful for because, again, they were booking into October um, for in-person consults, and uh, the OBG 
OBGYN that I seen there indicated to me to call central intake for radiology, indicate to them that, you know, I was able to take a cancellation and that my status had changed and I really needed this ultrasound to be completed um, ASAP. When I called Central Intake earlier this week, they indicated to me that my referral is now no longer valid because I don't have a family doctor anymore and that I need to get a new referral in order to get this ultrasound done, which I need to get a diagnosis and to get further um, information on my condition. Um, so I'm just left wondering now how many more people are in the same situation as me and again, were given a referral for diagnostic imaging before their family doctor left and are now left waiting in the lurch because again, this is not the impression that my family doctor gave me. and the, the physician I spoke with at Planned Parenthood, as well as the administrative team, are not aware of these issues. Well, I would imagine there's many people in a similar circumstance. What, what gets me on these stories is that we have pressure on the system. People can't get in to see a doctor. You had a family doctor. You got a referral from a licensed practicing doctor. Now, all of a sudden, it's void or it's expired because that doctor is no longer your doctor. Like, none of that makes any sense. What does one thing have to do with the other? A referral is a referral. Supposing your family doctor all of a sudden relocates to Nova Scotia. Does that mean my referral dies with that move? Like, it just doesn't make any sense. We're putting someone back in the system who has to wait even longer who is in pain needs this procedure which has been approved and here we are back to step one it just really doesn't make any sense exactly and again you know especially with the emergency room closures and you know the emergency room staffing issues that we're having now is just so frustrating patty and it's so disheartening um you know i'm one of the lucky ones i have access to a virtual health care provider but there's only so much that they can do Again, there is only so much that a walk-in clinic can do if you're lucky enough to get in. I also put in a call to 811 on August 29th. Sorry, not a call. I put it an online referral for 811 on August 29th when I had this issue at the walk-in clinic. I still haven't gotten a call back, and it's now September 14th. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so where are we? I'm trying to follow the story with the timelines. So are, are you absolutely right back to square one, or are you any further down uh, the road? So I, I did call Planned Parenthood, and again, I cannot say enough about Planned Parenthood. I mean, we both know they have limited funding, but they are going above and beyond to try and help me in this situation. I did manage to get a call, a, a, a telephone appointment uh, for this week, again, on a cancellation. Um, and they, are, um, they indicated to me that I can ask for a new referral at that point in time. I can only hope that I'll maintain my spot on the list with this new referral because like I said I have been waiting since May but I don't know what the status is going to be once that new referral is sent in am I going to have to wait six months again you know it's it's very frustrating and again I'm taking away an appointment from somebody else who needs to see somebody at Planned Parenthood all because I need to get this referral sent in again you know sometimes the folks running the system Every now and then they just do something to make it worse, as opposed to taking every effort to make it easier and better and to keep appointments up for the new patient th to be seen. We're seeing a quote-unquote old patient who's already had this step taken with their family doctor. I'm just I'm frustrated for you, Melissa, and I can only imagine what you're going through, not only the mental anxiety but the physical pain, so I feel terrible for you. Yeah, exactly. You know, it's been a very frustrating situation. I'm very lucky in the sense that I can advocate for myself. And again, I do have access to a virtual provider. There is still a fee associated with this. Um, however, it is at a reduced fee. And I am lucky enough that I could pay for that. But there's many other people who are in the same situation as me who aren't as lucky and cannot advocate for themselves and do not have the funds to go to a private clinic or do not have the flexibility to be able to go to a, um, a, a, a private clinic 
whenever an appointment comes up again i'm lucky i work in office job i have a fair bit of flexibility my you know my bosses are very understanding so if i get a call for a cancellation i can just up and leave but again you know those who are working in you know minimum wage jobs or retail facing jobs front facing jobs with clients and customers again they're not they're not as lucky and it's just so it's so frustrating it's so disheartening and you know it like you said like it creates a lot of mental anguish and anxiety Good luck with it, Melissa. I appreciate you telling us your story. And I would imagine there's many people listening that they themselves or people they know or belong to them are the, in the exact same boat, unnecessarily so. I wish you well. You too, Patty. Thank you so thanks, much. Thanks, Melissa. Okay. Bye. Bye-bye. Like, why does that happen? Uh, let's take a break. Don't go away. Hey, welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number five. Caller, you're on the air. Hello, Patty. Hello. Yes. <laughs> Um, I'm uh, really uh, encouraged uh, the, to hear about these um, proposals for wind energy. However, there's a but there. Okay. Uh, this is uh, a, an increase or introducing uh, electromagnetic uh, in environments like... Uh, it's been known that uh, uh, people uh, that's been close to transmission lines and uh, large uh, transformers, you know, uh, in their environment, it's been a, a, a cause for cancer. Oh, boy. So this, I guess, starts with an utterance from the former president regarding wind farms and wind turbines cause cancer. The reality is the science says there's no such evidence of any link between wind farms and cancer. There is some potential impact on people's mood and their sleep. I remember reading about this because I couldn't believe he said it out loud. It actually goes on to say that the scientific community thinks that wind turbines and that form of energy may reduce some forms of cancer, like lung cancer, because you're taking away coal-fired generation. So there has been all kinds of studies on this stuff, whether it be pertaining to birth defects, heart attacks, strokes, cancer, and there's no science to back it up. Well, it's 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 nice. I I've been wondering why we weren't, but uh, you know, we have to be careful uh, what we're uh, overlooking and what we're not, and uh, that's. I'm not a, a, a engine, electrical engineer, and those people who are in that in that field, I I, I think they uh, they should consider it uh, uh, quite uh, carefully. We should consider everything carefully, but the issue surrounding whether or not wind farms cause cancer, I mean, I remember the big blow up when that happened, when the former president said that out loud, and then the scientific community very quickly jumped in and said, look, obviously these types of risks, whether it be for coal fire generation or hydro and methyl mercury and wind turbines and noise and all these things, and there's absolutely zero science that said there's any link, any scintilla of evidence that links wind farms with cancer. So, I mean, there are studies out there. I, I remember back when this all happened, I read a, a few things. And you know, there are potential impacts on people's mood and their sleep patterns and whatnot, but that's also, of course, uh, related to how noisy they used to be, which has been vastly reduced over the years. So all that I know about it is what I read about it, and I went to a variety of peer-reviewed magazines and journals just so I could have a look at what 
you know, someone who's in a leadership position where people will take what he says as the truth, and it's, it's just not there. Yes, uh, well, uh, this, uh, when you get, you, you get into things, and sometimes you're done if you do, you're done if you don't. You know, you mentioned about uh, uh, different different forms of uh, other, other things, uh, you know, that's, uh, that's causing health problems. And, uh, well, I'm, I'm wondering uh, what, what forms of, uh, of things that's not good, it, it comes uh, attached with any, any one form of, uh, of change in the environment. Sometimes the, uh, one thing will have a, an increase in, in some undesirable effects, and another one uh, probably would have a different one. So it's, I would like to say the, um, the engineering, the electrical uh, uh, engineering people would uh, don't go to sleep on this one. Like we said with a, a caller earlier in the program, regarding whatever it be, magnetic fields and otherwise, I don't understand the implication of what that might mean, what complications that might bring about. But the reference to cancer, I did read a lot about it at the time because it was big news. I mean, people were talking about it. And uh, that's the science that I've been able to read. And like I mentioned, I went to what people would consider, I think, by and large, the reputable sources, uh, as reputable as it gets in the scientific world. I appreciate you making time for the call for the show this morning, sir. Thank you very much. Yeah, I think it would be it would be wise for us to tread very carefully. Understood. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. You're welcome. Bye bye. Bye bye. Uh, there you go. All right. Uh, so that fellow had the last word, but you know the deal. We will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning, right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer David Williams, I'm your host Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye bye. <laughs>